Ladies, gentlemen, and those who don't believe in a gender binary, welcome back to Directors Club Podcast. I am your uh, temporary uh, substitute host, Patrick Rapol. Uh, while Jim is out, I will be uh, hosting the uh, episodes this summer. And uh, this episode on Louis Mall, I'm joined by Robert Reinecke from Still Watching the Skies. Hi, Patrick. Hi. Let's <laughs> say. <laughs> It's uh, it's you. It's it's our it's our breezy natural chemistry. I think that keeps people coming back to these podcasts. <laughs> um, and I am also joined by Regina Lynn of PandaBearShape.com. Hello, Regina. Hello. Um, how are how's everybody doing today? I'm vaccinated. I'm feeling well. Hey, pretty good. <laughs> so I'm operating on. I'm operating about four hours of sleep. <laughs> I've been up, been up since three, and I, I did about four shots of espresso before coming home from work. So <laughs> I am ready to talk about uh, French New Wave question mark director Louis Maul. Um, Louis Maul, a director not easy to categorize as French New Wave, not easy to categorize as anything, really very eclectic body of work. Um, but before we do any of that, we have to get into what we watched this week. What we watched this week. Oh. Oh. How many of us watch them? Films. Ones that we grew up with. Films. Of all different genres. Films. Before we start the podcast, let's talk movies on magic. It's plain to see whether in the theater or on DVD. Some scare your pants off, some make you laugh. Some of the best and some tote to crap. Whether you're talking about Spike Jones, King B. Door, or I Love the Stone, Jacques Tati, or George Roy Hill, it's all good to me because I love films. Films. Which did we watch this week? Films. And what did we think of them? Films. And should you try to catch them? Films. It's time to move on with the podcast. Let's talk films. All right. Um, Robert, how about you start? What's something that you've been watching recently? Oh, wow. Well, I I was recently, uh, well, virtually attended the Milwaukee Film Festival, uh, which I saw about the... Uh, 14 or 15 films uh, for. Uh, now, uh, there, there's a lot to Is this voluntary? <laughs> <laughs> or or is, this a clock, is this a clockwork orange situation? Is this some sort of rehabilitation program that someone has put you in that you have to, watching that many films in that short a time? Well, it was two weeks. I mean, I saw the latest from uh, Christian Petzold and uh, Hong Sang-soo. Um, oh. Uh, I saw a rather... Surprisingly good documentary on M.C. Escher called Journey to Infinity. You could tell it was good because it only had one celebrity talking head, and he actually had stuff on point to say. <laughs> was it was it Dave was it Dave Grohl talking about how M.C. Escher is the reason Nirvana exists, or that just every other documentary? <laughs> That's every other. Yeah, it was uh, okay. Graham Nash, who I don't even know if he can count as a celebrity these days. <laughs> Graham Nash. <laughs> Who actually had when we cult- wrote "Sweet Judy Blue Eyes," we <laughs> were thinking of the hands drawing each other. 
apparently he actually had a conversation with uh, MC Escher back in the day. Um, <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> um, Is it? Um, but uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I, I also wanted to. I'll mention my donkey, my lover, and I, which is kind of a French uh, romantic comedy farce. Uh, uh, we saw the trailer to that like yesterday. Yeah, I, we, I saw that. I saw that Robert reviewed this on Letterboxd, and I looked up the trailer, and I was oh. like, "You got to see this charming donkey." I don't know. It's come full circle or full infinity staircase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the the donkey is very charming, and it's named. Uh, Patrick or Patrick, as she uh, mm-hmm. the main character calls it. So, <laughs> one day I hope to be as charming as that donkey. <laughs> but really, I, I, I think what what I should uh, lead off with is the is the big one that I saw, which was uh, "Summer of Soul" uh, from Questlove, um, which is about the Harlem Cultural uh, Festival back in 1969. So basically, running concurrently with Woodstock and. Uh, Featuring p- people like B.B. Uh, King, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, the Staple Singers, um, uh, Nina Simone, um, Fifth Dimension, and quite a few more. And it's, it's an is amazing this, is this, lineup of music. Oh, I'm sorry. Music. Yeah, I was going to ask, is this, is this more of a concert film or a documentary? Uh, it's more of, well, it's, it's kind of both. I mean, it's certainly about the culture at the time. There are talking heads given, uh, uh, background and providing context. They had meant to show it, but apparently, uh, no distributor at the time wanted to touch a black, uh, music festival doc, at least not when Woodstock was out there. <laughs> they didn't think it would be, uh interested but the the performances are great throughout uh stevie wonders in it too a young stevie wonder um i mean there's but the main thing is you want to tune in for the uh performances which are great throughout as you would expect uh from everybody involved um i mean it Uh, it certainly does what was the standout what was the standout performance for you i think it would slide in the family stone tell you the truth they they feel like yeah. they're, they're the most modern of of the bunch. Um, sure, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, they were they were on the vanguard of what would become the black sound of the seventies. Yeah, and uh, I mean, they certainly had a, a mixed cultural uh, band there. I mean, and uh, mixed gender, mixed uh, race. Uh, I mean, Sly is a, a natural performer. Uh, I mean. They said get him out on time was always a problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think the performance was, was I, I well, Questlove ends the the movie on a uh, slide the family stone performance. So I think that says a lot about who who uh, Questlove thinks was the best, and that's who I think was the best of the performances. But I I think every performance is dynamite throughout. What's the venue that this took place at? Uh, it was just a park in uh, Harlem. Anybody okay. can walk so in. So it's for like a free. public. Yeah. Nice. And uh, yeah, they, they they gathered up all the documentary. I guess they provided some uh, contemporary talking heads, which I think it's a little overdone. But I mean, some people have uh, uh, something to say. Uh, I mean, Gladys Knight shows up. She performed, and she has some some things to say about it. Uh, TV Wonders on camera a bit. Uh, 
Lin Manuel Miranda shows up, even though he had nothing to do with it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you do. It's it's twenty twenty one, and you ask Lin Miranda, Lin Manuel Miranda, what he thinks about things. That's just that makes sense. Well, he he is one of the about specifically about the East Harlem, Spanish Harlem, uh, some of the uh, singers that performed there and, and their relevance. So I, I think that adds context. Mm-hmm. I know nothing about oh, good. Uh, Cuban or Cuban American or Caribbean American uh, music from the nineteen uh, late sixties. So, um, so have you ever seen Watts Stacks? I have not seen that. So that's one of my all-time favorite concert films, and it's this. Uh, it was after the Watts riots in L.A. Stacks Records flew like all of their artist Stack Records was sort of based in Memphis, but they flew all their artists out to the L.A. Coliseum. And put on this show specifically for like people from the Watts neighborhood, and it, it's a concert film that has all these amazing performances. Isaac Hayes closes it out. You got um, Gladys Knight is there as well. Um, you got uh, Rufus Thomas and just like a whole bunch of really amazing performers. But um, it's intercut with uh, footage of Richard Pryor just sort of speaking extemporaneously. Like, it kind of feels like they just put a camera on him and told him to riff, and it's just him, like, half doing comedy, but half just talking about police brutality and stuff like that, and, you know, how hard it is to be a black man in America, and they, they're interviewing uh, just people on the street from the neighborhood about, like, different issues in black America at the time, and I think that was a pretty successful movie, but that was 1972, so it is funny that in 1969, they shot all this footage and couldn't find anyone to sell it to yeah well i mean it it is certainly uh uh there, there is certainly an edge to the film and there's the edge to the people attending i know they assembled some interviews like it was concurrent with uh men landing on the moon and uh there's a lot of people at the concert going yeah i couldn't care less about the uh, men landing on the moon they should spend that money on uh, feeding the poor <laughs> That's the Jill. That's the Jill Scott Heron piece, right? Yeah, Whitey on the Moon, one of the greats. <laughs> um, were, were there any other standouts from that film festival that you can think of? Um, I mean, I, I saw a lot of good ones. Uh, the PBS uh, Rita Moreno uh, doc, uh, "Just the Girl Inside of Gulfport," is really candid and revealing. And uh, uh, Rita Moreno is still a firecracker, and she has nothing to hold back. So. Uh, <laughs> No F's given in that. <laughs> um, I mean, I think those were the were the big ones. I mean, I, I liked uh, Christian Petzold's uh, Undyne uh, with uh, uh, Paula Beer and uh, uh, Franz Rogansky from uh, Transit Reuniting. Um, they play lovers, but she's actually a water spirit or a mermaid of some sort. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Does it have that? Um, so transit had sort of an interesting, um, sort of I don't know what you would call it. It has it has this sort of the modern day period. <laughs> yeah, it's it's shot like can, with all like it's a period piece about World War II and people trying to flee Europe, but it is but they didn't make any attempt to make it look like a period film. So there's just all modern cars and modern technology and like. The stormtroopers are just, you know, modern riot cops and stuff like that. Was is that 
is there a similar sort of frisson happening in the uh, Christian Petzold, the new one? Well, I mean, I, I, there's a, there's some fantasy mixed in with reality. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not to the extent that Transit is, but it's certainly a a really good looking film, and they do some uh, undersea f- or underwater photography because he's a, a, a underground underwater welder. Um, he, he works on uh, projects underwater, so there's there's certainly there's two worlds at, at play there, and they they mix it in unexpected ways at times. Okay, yeah, so that does sound, seem somewhat similar yeah. mo there. Yeah, it's I mean, Petzl certainly has has his mo about how he wants to tell a story. Um, and I, again, there, there's a uh, I, I don't think it's as strong as uh, Phoenix or. Uh, transit but i i think it's certainly well worth checking out when it uh comes and i i really did like the hong sang su film uh um the woman who ran which is very oh yeah very uh i, I think it's very subtle i i think it, he really doesn't reveal his hand on what he's going for until like the last uh 15 minutes or so um but it, it did make me want to go back and rewatch the whole thing uh, after Regina, you, you saw the woman who ran. Yeah, I, I don't remember. It, it was part of an, another uh, film festival that that had to to go online over the last year. I don't remember which one, um, but I did see it earlier this year. And, and I agree. I thought it was. I, I, I love how it's very restrained and, and just really focuses on like um, like like this the the protagonist and like her her friendships, you know. And it's very it's very conversation based. One might compare it to my dinner with Andre in some ways. <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe that was a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I was like, oh, I could I mix everything together. How much quail do they eat? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was a really excellent movie. It's very human. Um, uh, Regina, what have you been watching recently? Um, so I was trying to think of um, what movie I have been watching that really has been getting me like excited and energized for you know art or or whatever um and it I couldn't really come up with a movie um but to be honest um what I have been watching on a screen recently that has been fitting that bill is called The Infinite Wrench Goes Viral which is a weekly production of the Neo Futurists who are a um a Chicago uh theater group um, they're a pretty well-established um, theater company. Um, they're, um, they had a, a long-running weekly show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, um, which there were some licensing issues with the names a few years ago, so now they're calling it The Infinite Wrench. Um, they put it on once a week, and it is um, a, you know, you know the... Uh, the collective of the neo-futurists um, write weekly um, short plays um, with, in which they portray themselves and they portray like an experience that they've had recently. So it's not about um, it's not about making a play about the imagined. It's about um, finding like the performance in real life experiences. Um, I have lived in Chicago since. 2012, and I have never seen this live, um, which is kind of embarrassing to me as a theater person. Um, but 
honestly, like whenever I would bring it up to people, people would be like, oh yeah, I went to it, I didn't really like it. So like, I just never kind of ended up going. Um, but then with the pandemic, they, they went online. Um, and if you, you know, go on Patreon and you, you toss them three bucks, you, you can see the show. So um, in October, I was like, oh, I, I want to, you know, watch something new. I hadn't really seen this. So, so I did that and I was like immediately hooked. I, I think it's, uh, I, I haven't, maybe watched as much online theater or online productions that like other theater companies have been doing since the pandemic as maybe I would have liked to. Uh, but I think what the neo futurists are doing right now is really exciting. Um, and, and again, I can't really compare it to uh, what the stage version of infinite wrench is like. Um, but it's, a group of really interesting performers. Um, there's a really good mix of um, certain formulas they use that are very familiar. And also, you know, people will just throw in something that's like pretty bold and experimental once in a while. Um, so it's very well balanced in that way. You kind of get a sense of like um, who these people are and come to, to care for them, which is kind of interesting because it's like they're characters, but these are also people that like I could run into at Jewel Osco maybe. So like what's for like, what's an example of like a, one of the pieces that you've seen as part of this that spoke to you? Um, there was a really lovely piece that they did during their Thanksgiving week. Um, this was still when everyone was like being very strict about social distancing. And so like not really performing together unless it was outside. And it was, I mean, like, like November in Chicago, it's not that pleasant to be outside. Um, so what they did was they had a, like a Thanksgiving potluck dinner at the theater um, where everyone had dinner one at a time and would sit at a table where every other cast member was represented by a prop. So it was, it was just this, like, um, this sort of montage of each cast member sitting alone having thanks. I'm like getting so choked up thinking about it. Cause it was just like, Oh, it was really poignant. Um, like every cast member having Thanksgiving dinner by themselves, surrounded by props representing um, each of their like co-creators, um, and also like talking about like what being part of the cast meant to them. It, it was a really good encapsulation of last year. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was like like an example of of something, and 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 also where it's just this like. Um, something it really has me thinking about like like especially as someone who has done like a tiny little bit of film performance but mostly stage performance of just sort of like oh what is it what does it mean to to go back to performing on a stage and performing in person and like and like w what are the differences between like like recording a performance on a cam with a camera and performing for people in real life and it's not recorded and then it's just gone well, that that's definitely something can be tied to Louis Mall in a film. Yeah, we'll well, be yeah, about later. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. So, um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend that folks check it out. I mean, especially if if you're really into like short films and just like um, experimental things done on a shoestring budget. Um, they're called the Neo Futurists, and you can look them up on Patreon. Awesome. Um, I myself, I had a little bit of a 
let's say emotionally exhausting film festival. Uh, I, uh, I, was, I was just sort of, as I, as I sometimes do, um, a good way to find what new interesting movies has arrived at the Chicago Public Library is just to search for Kino Lorber <laughs> and then arrange by date newest editions um, because they tend to get most Kino Lorber releases or they get like a good percentage of them. And one of them was Puzzle of a Downfall Child, which is a film from, oh, I should probably pull this stuff up, but it's a film from the 70s that uh, previous guest and my friend Bill Ackerman did a commentary track for. Um, so I was like, well, that definitely has to be one. Puzzle of a downfall child. Let's get all the stats ready. 1970 by Jerry Schatzberg. Um, Jerry Schatzberg went on to direct uh, better known films like The Scarecrow, uh, Panic in Needle Park, um, with uh, both both films with Al Pacino. But this is a film from 1970 with Faye Dunaway, um, where she's this sort of former model. Um, it, it, it does a lot of jumping around in time and in sort of the quote-unquote present tense of the story. She's in her like late 40s, early 50s, and it jumps back like all the way to her being a teenager and stuff. And I sort of saw this as, I was like, oh, you know, there's actually a lot of these movies from the early 70s that are like these sort of borderline new Hollywood, like post, you know, post Bonnie and Clyde, postgraduate um, sort of, uh, new Hollywood female-driven melodramas. Like, they're, they're the new, you know, new uh, French New Wave-influenced interpretations of the kind of movies that, like, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford would be in in the 40s and 50s and stuff. Um, so I ended up seeing four of them. I saw Puzzle of a Downfall Child. I saw um, Play It As It Lays. I saw... Images, the Robert Altman movie, which I had already seen before, but I decided to rewatch it because um, it fit the theme. And I saw Diary of a Mad Housewife, which of the four, that's the one that sort of stands out the most. And the thing that the first three movies have in common is that they are sort of about these women having these uh, emotional, mental collapses. And they're sort of breaking down. And it's these, uh, these films that are sort of jumping around in time and space, and they sort of use... Uh, experimental editing to express the emotional states of these women. So the first one, Puzzle of a Downfall Child, like I said, has Faye Dunaway as this once former, uh, you know, famous supermodel. It's based off of a real uh, supermodel. I'm, I, do, I forget the whole uh, story. It's probably all on the Wikipedia page or whatever that Jerry Schatzberg knew himself. So this is sort of like a very personal movie for him, a, tr a sort of tribute to this woman that I believe he was a fashion photographer at some point. So um, this is someone that he had a relationship with. But the thing about Puzzle of a Downfall Child for me is that it is all about style and it's not really about content because it is it is so relentless with the editing, the way it jumps back and forth in time, the things it does playing with space and audio. And there's just, there's just so many, it, it's, it's so relentless to the point where I kind of didn't have my footing. And there were points where I was like, I don't know if that, is that the same character as before? They have a new hairstyle. I can't even, I'm like, I had real, a lot of trouble piecing it together, but as an act of editing, it's absolutely jaw dropping. Um, it is, it's, it's almost like a performance or some of those Nicholas rogue movies, uh, man who fell to earth. Um, um, there's a scene, I, the, the scene that sort of really was the showstopper for me is the 
present tense, the sort of framing device for her going through her life is that someone has a tape recorder, someone that she knew in the past, you don't exactly know who it is at first, is like just sort of asking her questions and basically interviewing her on tape. Um, and then as she's sort of reminiscing about these stories, we flash back to those times. And there's a sequence where she sort of gets distracted and she wants to play the recorder and she starts playing the recorder and he tries to sort of gently get her back to telling her life story. And she's like, can I listen back to the tape? And he goes, okay. And then he rewinds the tape and then you hear what you just heard for like the past three minutes. Again, the audio that the, of everything that you just saw happens again. You hear her saying, I want to play the recorder. I want to do this or whatever. And she starts playing it. You hear him trying to get her back on track. But as you hear this tape playing back, you are seeing flashes of the story she doesn't want to see of a traumatic event that happened to her. And I can't really relate too many details about the story, but because it's just... It didn't stick with me. It was it was this thing where I had such trouble grasping what the fuck was going on that it was more it was just like dazzling style more than anything else. Um, Play it as it lays is a similar story, um, but it is sort of I would say it was equally hard to follow if I didn't read the novel it's based on. It's based on a novel by Joan Didion, um, a pretty well known beloved novel. I think it's like on Time Magazine's Greatest American Novels or whatever. Um, but, and it was adapted by her as well. She adapted, uh, she wrote the screenplay with her uh, husband. And I had read the novel uh, last year during the pandemic. And if I had not read the novel, I probably would not have been able to follow it because it's another one where there's a lot of jumping around in time. There's a lot of, you're not, for you know long stretches of the movie, you're not sure what the relationships between the characters are. But I read the novel. I know her interior monologue. Um, so this one was directed by Frank Perry, who also directed films like The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. Um, he directed Last Summer, uh, which is a really great movie I've talked about on this podcast in the past. Um, and it stars uh, Tuesday Weld as, and uh, Anthony Perkins. They're kind of the co-leads. Um, and Frank Perry also directed Diary of a Mad Housewife. And I think the thing I found, I guess, I guess to jump to the end, the thing I found interesting about watching these four movies back to back is that two of them were written by men. Images was written by uh, Robert Altman, uh, as well as directed by, and uh, actually I want to double check that real quick because I'm like, Robert Altman would often have collaborators that he would write screenplays with, but it, it was at least in part uh, written by him. Let's see, yeah, Robert Altman, oh, he wrote it with Susanna York. Um, so Images and Puzzle of a Downfall Child are movies that are written by men, and they are... Um, about women who are sort of having breakdowns and you don't know why and you're not sure like what's causing this what was what set this spiraling off it's just sort of like well you know it's you know the the world is a harsh place and women they just they just crack up and there's just really no understanding them really like it's just and it's you know that is it's an artistic choice it's not necessarily incorrect but like the the one diary of a mad housewife and um Play It As It Lays are written by women and, and based off of, adapted from novels written by women. And those are like, um, no, they're, they're, it's pretty clear what these women want and they tell the people like around them, like, you know, Play It As It Lays is about this woman who has, she's married to this up-and-coming Hollywood director and she has a sort of special needs child that she doesn't have custody of and she wants to get a divorce and she wants custody of the child and he doesn't want either to happen and he has more power than her in sort of their lives and also sort of generally in Hollywood and more influence among their friends and stuff. So she is kind of his hostage in this relationship. And 
she's sort of like, it's very clear what she wants and, you know, whether or not that's going, you know, going to fix her issue is probably not, but at least it's very clear. It's like, okay, her mom has a history of mental illness and now she has this, you know, daughter who has these, who's sort of emotionally disturbed in some way and it's, you, it's very sensical what's happening in uh, Diary of a Mad Housewife. She just is married to an awful, awful man played by Richard Benjamin. And you're like, yeah, and she, that's, that one steps aside because she doesn't go crazy in that. She actually has a pretty good sort of self-reflexive uh, sense of humor that she uses to deal with just how fucked everything is in her life. But it is funny that the ones written by women are like, you know, it's, you know, like, it's it's hard, but, like, it's not inexplicable. We know what's going on. And then the ones, like, Images is like, good luck figuring out Images. <laughs> images is, images is, a, is a horror movie as much as it is a drama um, where Susanna York is this woman who she gets these threatening phone calls from this voice she doesn't recognize and, that say her husband is cheating on her. And then when her husband gets home, she goes to kiss him. And then he suddenly becomes, he takes the appearance of a former lover that she had that died in a plane crash. And she gets really freaked out. And to sort of decompress or whatever, they, they go away to their summer home. But like while she's there, the, the former lover keeps appearing and then also there's someone who lives in that area who she had an affair with and he keeps popping up and he's still alive so he's just sort of this like brutish man sort of trying to force himself back into a relationship that she wants no part of anymore and these three men kind of cycle personas and um, there's also a lot of weird stuff with like chandeliers and like there's all of these like little m- m- bits of like uh, sparkling glass baubles that are hanging that those images keep reappearing and it's just it's just sort of this it's it's almost like a nightmare where you're not exactly sure what's reality and what isn't um, even at the end it's not a hundred percent clear what is happening there's a sort of a recurring bit where whenever she leaves a room and like comes back there's always a camera that her husband has that like changes position so it's pointed towards her and at one point she shoots who she thinks is her former lover and she actually just shot the camera and it's not exactly sure what's going on there. It's a very, very kind of heady, uh, uh, instinctual, dreamy kind of movie. And it's not necessarily like, oh, the, the ones that have really grounded, psychological, realistically char- realistic characters, those are the ones that are good. And the ones that are sort of more expressive and out there, those are bad because it's like, well, you know, there's different tactics. They're very different movies. Images wouldn't work if you knew what was going on. Um, and uh, play it as it lays wouldn't work if it was just totally inexplicable. Um, they're, they're trying different things, so it's not necessarily like one approach is bad or one approach is good, but it is... I always think of Robert Altman as like, oh yeah, he's the guy in New Hollywood who was good with women, and he always had like great female characters, which is, you know, that is true. And, like, he always, you know, there are always all these great female performances and really interesting uh, actors in his movies, you know. Um, but it is, it is funny watching these movies back to back and sort of realizing the limits of that where it's like, he is still a man and he doesn't, you know, he's not a, he's not making a film from his perspective. He's making a film or he's making a film from his perspective. He's not making a film from a woman's perspective. And he has a limited ability to limited amount of insight and stuff like that. So it was funny watching all four of those back to back and seeing how they talk to each other. It's also, it's the sort of thing where, I don't know, I've just been doing a rambling monologue at this point. <laughs> I don't know. Have you, have you seen any of these films, Robert? I have not seen any of these films, so. I'm learning. Okay. I've and seen, I have I've, not either. I, I have uh, seen the play version of uh, Joan Didion's uh, Year of Magical Thinking. 
Okay, well, that's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Have to offer something up. Yeah, and I've seen Diary of a, Tyler Perry's Diary of a Mad Black Woman, so I think we're all Tyler Perry, Frank Perry, basically the same guy. Um, no, but it is... Uh, like I never, I've never been like the new Hollywood guy the lot, way a lot of cinephiles are. And for me, I think a lot of it is that with these sort of freedoms to like, we can make movies that are frank about sex. We can make movies that are violent. We can make movies that you know have drug use and have and you know they they don't have the Hayes Code mandated happy endings and all of these things that sort of freed up artists in in America to make really interesting movies. A lot of those artists turned out to be sort of young men who just were young men in the early 70s and had shitty opinions of women and a lot of those movies it's like all the female characters are just useless or they're like they're 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 just sort of they have no agency or they are just hopelessly in love with the main character for no reason or it's 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 like you know no one no one watches the godfather and goes oh that diane keaton <laughs> she's so great um, no one watches the con- i don't even remember the name of the uh, the the female actors in uh, the conversation but like you know french connection is not a film that has a lot of interesting female performances you go down the list of all of these movies um, and it's it's just like part of letting these artists sort of tell these personal tales is that their personal tales include their sexual politics, which, you know, reflect the times. So whereas when you look at films from the 40s and 50s, they're sort of hamstrung by, you know, okay, they have to sort of be suggestive. They can't say what they want to say about sex or whatever, but at least they're like lots of interesting roles for women. And and there was still a market where they were really pushing those movies. And I always just, because of the kind of new Hollywood movies that, sort of get held up as like, this is why this is the greatest period in Hollywood history or whatever. I always assume that it was just like, oh yeah, there's just not really a lot of female driven movies from that time, but there are, they're just, people don't talk about them, you know, play it as it lays. I don't even know if that has a DVD release. I watched a really bad, uh, transfer on a, on YouTube, you know? So, um, I do want to talk about a little more about Diary of a Man Housewife though, cause that movie's really fucking funny. Richard Benjamin from Catch 22 and, a few other movies I can't recall at this time. He plays the asshole abusive husband, but he is he is an abusive husband that I've never seen on film before, but I've seen in real life a lot, which is he does this thing where he everything is sort of couched in a joke and everything and he has this sort of like reflexive childishness that he just says hurtful shitty things all the time, but he does it like I you know, I'm just kid I'm just kidding you and Everyone involved knows that he's not kidding, and also he'll just sort of be like, "But I wanted to do it my way," and do like that sort of thing. And you're just like, and I'm like, I've seen people, like I've seen people who dated people or are married to people like that, and they're just like, "You have a Twitter account?" Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> there are like lots of men who are, you know, adult men who are married or whatever that are like just. Um, manipulative in that way because they can't just be like it's not socially acceptable anymore to just be like I'm just be a drunk and I'm going to be physically abusive or whatever but they're still just like no you're, you're being shitty in a different way and Richard Benjamin nails that perfectly he is such like a whiny little piece of shit and then Frank Langella is like this super sexy <laughs> writer who she meets at a party at a party where Alice Cooper is playing as like a, it's the way Frank Perry shows that like this party's too out there. She wants to go home. It's too loud. Cause they just show Alice Cooper throwing feathers in the audience or whatever. And, and Frank Perry's like, you know, that noise rock that happens now. 
Frank Langella, it's like you watch this movie and you go, oh yeah, that guy went on to be Dracula for sure. Because he is this like totally seductive but also predatory guy who like sees all of her weaknesses and sees her insecurities and basically uh, dares her into having an affair with him. <laughs> He's like, I know, you're too, it's like, you, you know, you're too... You you can't let loose, you know. You you you'd never be able to have sex with me. And she's like, "What?" <laughs> she's like, "Actually, I hate my husband." <laughs> um, and I don't want to I don't want to ruin it. But Diary of a Mad Housewife has the funniest uh, one of the funniest endings I've ever seen in my life. Where there's this big scene where everyone lays their cards on the table, and it's like. You've seen this scene in movies before after it's like, okay, we've had the knockdown drag out fight. We had this. All of the simmering emotions have come to a head. Everyone lays their cards out on the table and either it's going to end with them breaking up or it's going to end with them getting together. And Diary of a Mad Housewife goes, nah, what if it ends this third way that is absolutely out of nowhere and way funnier than anything you could have thought of? And it's like one of my favorite things I've ever seen. I love Diary of a Mad Housewife. In some ways, it's a pretty. It's it's not that different from something like The Lovers, uh, the Louis Maul film, where it's, you know, it's it's a pretty typical plot of a woman. She's having an affair, and she tells herself it doesn't mean anything, and then it does mean something, and then she is trying to balance that, and then of course, the person that she's having the affair with has his own feelings, and it's whatever. Like a lot of that movie is not necessarily groundbreaking or whatever, but that ending is absolutely spectacular. Um, so I would definitely recommend Diary of a Mad Housewife. And if you want to sort of see how experimental and um, sort of uh, how just how bold uh, some mainstream Hollywood movies, I guess it, it was mainstream at the time. It just was a failure and then promptly forgotten. Which, But Puzzle of a Downfall Child is also worth seeing. Just be like, I can't believe this. they made a movie like this with Faye Dunaway. You know, Faye Dunaway coming off of Bonnie and Clyde. She's a massive movie star. And she <laughs> and she's in a movie this, this weird. And of course, Images is my favorite of the four just because it's like an absolutely terrific horror movie. And it's shot by... Um, Oh, I always forget this gentleman's name. He's the greatest cinematographer of the 70s. Vilmos, uh, Vilmos Zygmunt. Yeah, yeah. Vilmos Zygmunt, who also shot McCabe and Mrs. Miller, my favorite movie. Um, he shot... Uh, I'm drawing a blank. What's the Steven Spielberg Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind. Before Jaws? He did shoot Close Encounters. And he, he did shoot Sugarland Express. Sugarland Express is the one I always think of, but obviously Close Encounters, no slouch in the visuals yeah, department. Yeah, yeah, he's beautiful. <laughs> Um, did so, he do a lot with Altman? I, you know, I don't know. Um, da, da, da. Let's go ahead. I have his Wikipedia open. Let's check. He did McCabe and Mrs. Miller and The Long Goodbye and Images. Um, but it looks like that's it uh, as far as Altman goes. He did shoot Deliverance. He shot uh, Cinderella Liberty. He shot Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, Blowout. He, he did some more with De Palma, like Bonfire of the Vanities. So obviously he had a... Uh, pretty successful career but um images is just absolutely stunning looking in addition to being really scary because i had seen the like this thing i'm talking about of the seven early 70s movie where the woman loses her mind i'd seen the horror versions of that right like i'd seen uh let's scare jessica to death is a really great movie that's an example of that sort of thing but i had not seen the straight dramatic takes um so I watched all four of these i thought about rewatching uh john cassavetti's a woman under the influence but that is 
too rough of a movie. <laughs> that is also that that almost exists in its own continuum because it's not about like, yeah, women are just kind of baffling and crazy. It's all humans are baffling and crazy. No one in this movie acts like a normal person does. Um, everyone is kind of heightened and hysterical in that movie. So uh, that's that's just sort of on its entirely different wavelength. But uh, definitely would recommend Images and uh, Puzzle of a Downfall Child and Diary of a Mad Housewife is pretty good too. Um, play it as it lays, I'd say ignore it until you have read the book because you're just not going to get picked up on a lot of stuff. Like Anthony Perkins, gay man in real life, plays uh, her producer friend who is a closeted gay man um, but it is a film from the early 70s so it's kind of like the implications are very light they don't really get into that, um, which makes their sort of dual misery, the, this way they glom onto each other. Like, once you read the book, you're like, okay, yes, these are people who need each other. But you watch the movie, and it's a little hard to figure out why exactly they have the relationship they have. And, like, is this, is there, are they having an affair? Why are they so close? And it's like, no, it's a whole other thing. But, um, yeah, so that was what I watched this week. Do you want to go on to talk about Louis Mall? Yeah, why not? Sure. is a really interesting filmmaker in the pantheon of French film because he came out around the same time as a lot of French New Wave people, but he didn't have a lot of the things that those French New Wave directors had. He had no association with uh, Cahir du Cinema. He didn't make, he didn't sort of originate deeply personal material. He wasn't um, sort of this like fierce, fiercely auteuristic kind of person trying to establish you know, his voice, and uh, early on, you know, he wasn't really making autobiographical films at all. He was always adapting novels, and it was just, um, it was not really, he didn't really fit that mold the way a Godard or a Truffaut or an Eric Romer or a lot of those uh, filmmakers did. Um, he was, he came from an upper-class family um, who, you know, he was he was born in, um, he was born in 1932, and he lived through the occupation of France um, which deeply informed many of the films that he would later make. Um, he went on to go to film school, um, and but he dropped out of film school to become basically Jacques Cousteau's uh, assistant on the uh, documentary The Silent World. And Jacques Cousteau was a sort of a film, an environmentalist slash uh, explorer slash underwater filmmaker. The, the life, if you don't, if you're not familiar with him, Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, the Wes Anderson movie is 
very much inspired by Jacques Cousteau and specifically the, the documentaries that Jacques Cousteau would make, like The Silent World that he made with Louis Maul. Louis Maul was just sort of a guy who was at film school who applied to work with Jacques Cousteau, and Jacques Cousteau very graciously named him co-director on the movie. And when that movie went on to win a Palme d'Or, that made Louis Maul uh, a Palme d'Or winner at the age of like 23 or something insane like that. <laughs> um, and that was his introduction to the film world. Um, and so he had this experience with these documentaries, um, but he didn't have a lot of experience with actors. So he went on to assist uh, Robert Brisson, another great uh, French New Wave director, um, on A Man Escaped uh, from 1956. And that was sort of his training course where he learned how to work with actors. And from there, he went on to make his first feature film, Elevator to the Gallows. Elevator to the Gallows is sort of a film noir crime story um, about a man who commits what he believes to be the perfect murder only to immediately be thwarted by fate and have consequences just spiral out of his control. And not only out of his control, but everyone he interacted with in the brief time he committed the crime, their lives all spiral out of control uh, just from interacting with him. Um, it's kind of a freewheeling movie. It, it does a lot of crazy tonal shifts. Um, it opens almost like an episode of Columbo where it's this very inventive, like, ah, oh, what a perfect crime. He, he murders his boss by using a grappling hook to rappel up to the boss's floor, sneak into the boss's office, shoot him in the head, place the gun in the boss's hand. It's the boss's gun, which is why that's supposed to, that's supposed to make it look like a suicide. And then sneaks out and then grapples back down into his office and says, well, I'm done with my work day and walks off while his boss lays dead in a locked door. Um, except that as he gets down to the, to the street, he looks up, he realizes he left the grappling hook hanging on the building. So he goes to retrieve that. He gets caught in the elevator uh, when the security guard, who didn't know that he snuck back in the building, closed, turns off the power for the night, and he spends the night stuck in the elevator. And the woman, the boss's wife, who he's been having an affair with, who he was supposed to rendezvous after the murder, she thinks that he's abandoned her. Um, and these two kids that he runs into uh, on the street, when he starts his car, they go ahead and steal his car, and they go off on their own adventure. And the movie kind of spirals out from there. Um, so in some ways, it is a very much a French New Wave movie where it takes a genre and then kind of explodes it, and it kind of plays with your expectations of how this narrative is supposed to progress. It's, the setup feels very much like a movie that could have been made in Hollywood or England, but where it goes feels like a movie that only could have been made in you know 1950s uh late 1950s france um had you seen elevator to the gallows uh before we prepared for this episode uh, robert um i've i've seen clips on a miles davis documentary but i had not seen uh, uh the film before so it, it was new to me um and uh i i i ended up liking it quite a bit i i thought it was uh well I, i'll be honest if I looked at it before, see which year it was looked at, and I go, oh, it's a Breathless knockoff. And then I looked at the year, I go, oh, well, maybe Breathless is an elevator to the gals knockoff. <laughs> There's, like, one shot in particular with the couple that steal the car that is, like, absolutely one of the famous shots in Breathless. Um, there isn't the same. Like, the thing that makes the shot famous in Breathless is the jump cutting, which is not present here, but it does feel like Breathless got at least a little bit of inspiration from that subplot. Yeah, and... Uh, I mean, I, I agree. Columbo was the thing I thought, but it's not a Columbo movie whatsoever. It's it's uh, 
everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And there's definitely some uh, self-awareness of film noir at this time. I, I know uh, Cody from my podcast always says that people didn't know that they were making film noir when they were making film noir in the 40s. But uh, by now they've been written several papers on it and I think it, there's a self-awareness creeping in and there's certainly uh, that sense of fatalism or everything is going to go wrong uh, here just from uh, you attempt uh, this evil act and it's going to backfire on you in some way. <laughs> um, and it's and there, there's certainly some self-awareness throughout. I, I think there's probably some self-awareness throughout uh, Mel's... Uh, Filmography, uh, you know the the young couple compares themselves to Romeo and Juliet at one point, um, and they try to what, commit suicide in a dramatic fashion by taking pills. It doesn't work, but <laughs> <laughs> that that was that was one of uh, my favorite aspects of the movie is when is is like is like they do that and they have this like very like sort of stereotypical. French romantic moment where they're the lovers committing suicide, and then and then later um, we, you just see them with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Maul does not Maul does not show them waking up and sort of realizing it's failed. He only shows them just like after they've already realized it and they've accepted that they're not going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, it's like it's like it's like you think you you kind of think like oh well well there goes that the, you know he's really screwed now and then John Moreau kind of t- takes things into her own hands and is doing her own investigation and she finds these two kids and then she's like you idiots you can't kill yourself with this oh my god. <laughs> what did you think of the film, Regina? Um, I really I really liked it. Um, I'm not really big into French New Wave. Um, I, I, I think just because like most of the films that I have seen that are examples of French New Wave, I I, I just find the characters very off-putting. Um, but you know, you know, this was not what I, I mean, I did notice that there was some jump cutting. I don't remember if it was this or a fire within where Maul does use like jump cutting which I do like associate with that mm-hmm. but I mean I mean, just also like where it's like it's set in Paris everyone's very like young and has this like restlessness to them so it, it does um, like you know have have that aspect of, of new wave to it but but also just like like the film noir plot like it kind of made me think of uh, Double Indemnity a little bit sure um, in terms of the plot um, so so it was more palatable to me than like other like like examples of, of French New Wave that, that I have seen. It was it was a good blend of things that I like. Uh, I really I really love the style. Um, I, th- I think a lot of it was just sort of like, oh, you're you're just like at the at the coolest place in time in history. So, of yeah. course, it's going to look cool <laughs> where, with, with just like where they're where they're at this like roadside motel. And it's got this like very like like funky mid-century kind of architecture. That, and... that motel. Like, I love that they're like, oh, we'll go to this motel. And I'm like thinking Motel 6. And they yeah. get there and it looks like a, it looks like Logan's Run or something. I've never <laughs> seen a set of buildings like that. Like everyone gets their own little weird mini pod like house yeah yeah, yeah. and they're and they're just like they of course they have like their champagne and they're just like partying with these two german tourists and there's like a like 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 a like a like a, a staff member of the motel in, the, in this like futuristic looking little like 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 smart car almost that he's like oh, going yeah, he's around just, he's just and, carrying their baggage but it looks like yeah they have these like sexy sports cars and like yeah it's just like like like, like the style of it was just sort of like oh my god i want to live in this forever <laughs> i feel like in a lot of ways elevator to the gallows is a very typical like debut film in that it is all about like energy 
and style and like I've seen these movies but I'm going to turn these movies like I have an idea that turns those movies on their head but like the characters themselves have no real depth and there's yeah. it's not like emotionally driven at all yeah, um, there, there was yeah, a little like I, I would say that that's certainly Jean Moreau wandering around the streets of Paris feeling abandoned I, well Miles Davis I, plays, is, I feel is the the emotional one it's certainly not plot driven at that point <laughs> I, I, well, that's the funny thing. One of the tonal shifts is she sees the two kids who have stolen his car, but they just drive by real quick. So she sees the young woman in the passenger seat, um, and she doesn't see that the driver is the young woman's boyfriend. So she assumes, because it's her lover's car, that it's the lover who has run off with a younger woman. So she sort of has her own little existential crisis where she walks all night in Paris, sort of, you know, reflecting on her love and you know this plan that she had to murder her husband and where she went wrong and you know she'll always love him and stuff and to me the only reason it works is because Louis Maul was a lover of jazz and Louis Maul tapped Miles Davis to do the score and it's not that Louis Maul does that uh, Miles Davis does the score to the movie there's really not actually a lot of music in the movie Miles Davis, most of the score only really exists in that sequence of Jean Moreau walking the streets of mm. Paris. And it is so unbelievably haunting the the playing of Miles Davis that it like it makes you it's it's ridiculous because she is having this crazy crisis over something that's totally invented. And like not only did she misinterpret what is happening? The thing that is actually happening is so relentlessly stupid that it's like, <laughs> it is it is humorous. Like, I'm laughing as I'm, like, watching Jean Perrault wander around because she has just sort of entered her own different kind of French New Wave movie yeah. that is based on nothing that it, that is reality. <laughs> but because Miles Davis is so good, and I'm not even, like, a big Miles Davis fan, like most Miles Davis albums I've listened to, it's just, I can't wrap my head around it, but, like, it is the the sort of forlorn trumpet is just like unbelievable, and I think I think it does work emotionally, but all, not because of anything Louis Maul does. I think it's other than hiring Miles Davis. <laughs> well, yeah, that um, is a to, that is a little of, thing that Louis Louis Maul did do. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we sure picked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, to kind of go back to what you were saying earlier about about this being like a pretty typical debut film and wanting to like put different elements together, I, th- I think that's one of the things about this about uh, this movie that I didn't quite like was that it seemed like there were elements of it that could have just been like really dug into, and that would have been interesting. Like like when um, when the the protagonist ends up like stuck in the elevator, like you don't really spend a lot of time there. Where I feel like. There, there might be like another movie where that's like the bulk of it is just mm-hmm. this guy trying to get out of the elevator or um or or the the young couple um on the run because they've stolen a car and then ending up with these German tourists and kind of hanging out with them like that feels like like that's like a whole other movie so it's you know you, you, but but it, it's just yeah it's just like very um hurried almost and something that i really like about louis mall is i think most of his movies are very well paced like they don't overstay their welcome they don't really um you you know hammer in like this character's having an existential crisis this couple's on the rocks like like it doesn't you know it's just sort of like it makes its point and it moves on to the next story beat Mm -hmm. which is something i really appreciate but here it's a little too too much it's it, it's it's a little too too surface yeah um it's certainly the most plot driven of, of i think all louis mal's films 
Mm. Yeah. For uh, sure. I think I think this is something that sort of defines Louis Maul is that he was just he was a brilliant man, but there wasn't any one thing he was after and refined and developed. Um and when you're a brilliant young man, the thing you do, the thing that you're good at is like, I've never seen this. I've never seen this. You're like, you just are generating ideas, you know? Uh, Zazie Dan's La Metro is sort of the most extreme example of that, where the movie almost only exists so he can try out every crazy cinematic visual concept that he's ever thought of. Um, and like every scene in that movie only exists so he can try something new and crazy. Um, but I think as Louis Maul got older, he got a little more interested in humanity and he got a little, in, and not in a, I don't know, like you talk about like when you see something like The Lovers, The Lovers almost feels like it's still a movie made by a young man, but a young man determined to prove that he's mature. And so he's like, I'm going to handle this with sensitivity and grace. And it turns out it's like, ah, it's kind of boring because <laughs> you don't actually, you don't actually have that depth to draw on. Um, it's it's not a bad movie, but uh, it's once you get to sort of the later Louis Maul films, that's when you you see he sort of shed this uh, sort of restless energy. But this movie, uh, it's it's all um, energy. I want to say like there for me, there was enough in the elevator just because that that stuff is so strong. I it's almost a silent movie, you know, because he's stuck in an elevator on his own. You don't really hear an eternal monologue monologue. He's not really talking to anyone. So you just see him like sort of tearing the elevator apart and pulling up the floor and finding a panel underneath. And that stuff, I have a fear of heights. And he is, you know, I think like 14 stories up or something crazy like that. Like he lights his uh he he smokes his last cigarette and then he lights the cigarette packet on fire and then drops it down the elevator shaft to see how far it is. And then shortly after that, he climbs down to try to, like, climb out of it. And I was just, I was losing my mind. I was, like, gripping the couch. Just like, no, no, he's going to fall. So, like, Louis Maul, like, he is genuinely, like, super talented at drawing out suspense in a scene like that. In a scene that, you know, that is something, like, out of a Robert Brisson film. Uh, That is, like, something out of A Man Escaped or something like that. That purely visual storytelling of... um, but it's just, I don't think that Louis Maul necessarily had what it takes to sustain that for 80 minutes or whatever. Um, so you, so instead it, it switches from that. Just, there's just enough of the stuff in the elevator. Um, yeah, I would say like another touchstone for this movie would be like the movies of the Coen brothers, the sort of catastrophic uh, sort of spiraling fuck up kind of mm. movies like uh, in Blood Simple and Burn, Burn After Reading, especially like Burn, <clears throat> Burn After Reading is a movie about characters who don't have enough information to make the leaps that they make. And it's them sort of just drawing wildly incorrect conclusions and then doing drastic things based on those conclusions. And that is, that is like uh, Jean Moreau's storyline in a, in a nutshell is <laughs> that her whole thing is based off of an incorrect assumption that at no point the audience ever thinks is true. <laughs> like from day, like from the very first moment she falls into her like forlorn, sad trumpet playing sort of soliloquies. Like we're all just like, but no, that's not, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, it's so it's, it's, it's exciting and it's um, energetic, but it's also, it's, shallow like there's some stuff that he's trying to be political but it doesn't quite come off oh yeah where they bring up like like the algerian war and stuff like that yeah indochina war is something that pops up also in murmur of the heart um it's i i 
don't know much about French history, but Indochina War is my understanding is it's basically sort of their Vietnam that happened 10 years earlier where it was the sort of quagmire that the more they put into it, the more they lost. And the withdrawal was unpopular because it was an admit, admitting defeat or whatever. And so it is this thing that stuck with him along with the occupation of France that pops up in his movies again and again. Um, but in this movie, it's just sort of like the 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 young couple the the boy is just sort of this like knee jerk punk ass who who's just sort of like yelling at everyone who's older than him about like just whatever buzz you know catchphrases <laughs> could come to his mind in the Indochina War or Algiers is part of that he's just making up stuff about he used to be a soldier and he was like oh yeah I fought with some Germans even some that were with Himmel and <laughs> it's like dude you're seventeen there's a, there's a great detail where. Um... Where uh, they're having like like uh, like uh, they, like they meet these two German tourists and they're hanging out in the motel and everyone's drinking champagne and he has some like very like like angsty young man affectation reason for not drinking champagne and then you see him drinking a glass of milk and I think that tells you like everything you need to know about who that guy is. Um. So I don't I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to add about Elevator to the Gallows? I'm just, I'm just uh, on that I glass do, of milk, man. <laughs> I do like the final irony of uh, Jean Moreau trying to clear her lover's name by investigating him and actually ends up damning herself <laughs> there, too. Yeah. Um, and, and the photographs, I, I think that's nicely handled uh, by Louis Mal, just the, the photographs are developing at the same time. Uh, and the cops show up just then, too, so everything kind of... And it's together. I like it when a, a movie can uh, just come to a head and uh, uh, end itself without dragging on for another ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very well plotted, but it's also like it's well plotted in part because it's based off of a novel that is you know. So um, the the story is good, but necessarily not can't necessarily be attributed to Louis Malle. No, I, I I've I've not read the novel, so I can't say like what he changes about it or anything, but yeah. it feels like the kind of thing that if played straight could be a very straightforward um, sort of crime thriller, but instead it is played for laughs. And that is the subversive thing that Louis Maul adds that makes it his own film. You, th- that last scene? I, the whole film oh. I think could have been played more straight. If it like, if that couple wasn't so ridiculous, if her soliloquy in Paris wasn't so overwrought, like you could, you know, you could you could play the you could play all of the events of the film in like more of a straight film noir, um, but it has a sense of humor throughout. Like even when he is stuck in the elevator, it's very funny as as tense and scary as it can get. To me, at least. Yeah, I, well, I, guess, I guess just because Robert, you brought up the, that last uh, scene, and and you know, I i really love that scene too i thought it was very striking and, and to me it was kind of poignant because it's i mean i mean especially with like um where the photos of of the of like the two are developing and they're underwater and it's like they're kind of being moved around by her hand and, it, and it's just sort of like it gives it this sort of like memory unreal kind of um in, you know because it's like it's slipping through her fingers because she's going to go to prison for a real fucking long time um, you know, so so I guess I was just kind of caught on like the sadness of that, and I was I like, see. "Oh wait, there was like another eighty nine minutes of things that happened." Before. I forgot all about the glass of milk. It was it was gone. <laughs> 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 yeah, I guess I mean it's like on its own, out of context. It's like a really poignant, beautiful image, and I love that as an image to end the movie. But like in context, it didn't have 
any emotional pull for me because it was because it's just everything up to that point was ridiculous. Yeah, there, there's a lot of humor, or, or like like where um, where she goes to the office building and the, um, the the grappling hook has just fallen and it's like on the pavement and a little girl comes and like runs off with it. <laughs> that, that, that's funny. <laughs> I like I like when they when they go to the bungalow, the little motel where the German tourists have been murdered. There's all of these reporters there. Uh, because it's you know it's an international incident with these German tourists just murdered in cold blood. They're just shot to death for no real reason. Um, and the detective is very like you don't really learn a lot about the detective. He's not really a huge character in the movie, but like you instantly get a feel. He's like, oh yeah, he loves PR. He's you know yeah. he has his little he has a little speech all prepared. Or it's like you know within 24 hours they will be caught. And it's one of those things where like at the end of the movie it's true he did catch them after 24 hours, but he only caught them because they basically gave themselves up because like <laughs> it's like it's like that Simpsons episode where it's like but you didn't do anything, didn't, didn't I? I? <laughs> <laughs> That. So it's like so to me. Even the fact that he's just like, and I always get my man. It's like no, you wanted you didn't do anything. She walked into his other. I will say this. I think this movie is very well plotted. But so like like I said, the opening kind of feels like a Columbo, where you where before you really get much context for who people are, you see the sort of perfect crime being laid out. And but the thing about Columbo is you watch the perfect crime. And what you're supposed to do as an audience member is go, so where are they going wrong? Because at the end of this, Columbo is going to catch them, right? They're not mm-hmm. going to get away with this. I know who murdered, and I know how they murdered. What I don't know, that what the mystery is, as me, the viewer of this TV show, is what did they not think of that Columbo is going to find and pick at and basically unravel their whole alibi? Um, but like the very first thing I said, and I said it out loud as we were watching it, um, was he he climbs down from the balcony? And I'm like, you got to get that. You got to get the grappling hook. Yeah. Where's the yeah. grappling hook? You left the <laughs> grappling hook. It's like like the grappling hook is a metal hook on a rope. So it's not. It's as soon as he climbs down, he has no way of unhooking the thing from the floor above him because it's just it's just attached to a rope. There's no like it, it's all slack. He can't like he would have had to unhook it and then get down. And because he doesn't do that immediately, I'm like. Oh well, he's gonna get caught because that grappling hook. And then later, when the grappling hook falls to the ground, that little girl just runs off with it. It's very funny, but also it's like, how did that grappling hook fall off? It's oh, it's a grappling hook. <laughs> like literally, it supported his body weight as it climbed up. What? And then with no weight on it, it just fell on its own. Did a bird peck at it? Like, why is that grappling hook on the sidewalk? So there are some things in this where I'm like, that's oh, a little sloppy. <laughs> And if this was if this was played straight, then that would definitely hurt it more. But because it's such a, a silly uh, movie, that that to me did not uh, necessarily diminish it that much. Um, but it, it's not necessarily like an expertly tight uh, crime plot, uh, as much as it is just sort of. The other funny thing is like the couple when they're on the run. <laughs> They instantly, the German tourists, the reason they meet the German tourists to begin with is because they decide to drag race them in the middle of the highway for no real reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, the, and the German tourists are like, oh, that's a nice car. That's, it's cute, that car you have. I, we have a real sports car. <laughs> like, you're not. Um, and, and, like, instantly, every single thing the boy says about, like, what their backstory is, and like, oh, yeah, he's taking, he's taking the murderer's name, all this stuff, like... The German tourists, like, they see through it instantly, and they're just sort of bemused, and they're just like, yeah, let's hang out with these French kids. Let's see where this one goes. 
they're sort of, they seem like maybe just like this married couple who wants a little adventure in their lives and they don't they don't yeah. care that they're being lied to because they're just sort of like like oh you almost got us good for you like <laughs> like it literally they they go into the motel because that's where the German tourist goes and they crash their car into the German tourist car and the tourists are like well I guess that's what bumpers are for <laughs> this is just our beautiful Mercedes we care nothing <laughs> yeah. um, so it's it is it is funny that in a movie that it's like ostensibly the tension comes from the fact that they're lying and the audience knows they're lying and the audience is worried for them getting caught. It's, in actuality, they're not going to get caught because everyone sees through the lie and doesn't give a shit. Uh, and, and that sort of applies to the philosophy of the movie as a whole, where it's like, no, the world doesn't give a shit what you think. Like, you know, you can make whatever plans you want, but other things will happen. You do not have control over your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did enjoy Elevator to the Gallows. I, it's, it's a notable film obviously because it was his like big debut it was the film that got him international acclaim it was the thing that allowed him to make all these other movies but it was also a movie that uh it's it's also a movie that he sort of surpassed as he would later go on he he would do things that are more interesting he'd make films that are more challenging he would make films that feel less zeitgeisty um the way this feels like very much a sort of burgeoning french new wave sort of tone to it um i've so I don't necessarily think of this as like a uh, sort of a crowning moment of his career, even though it is a movie I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, is, does anyone else have anything to add to Elevator in the Gallo- Elevator to the Gallows? No, I, I think you summed it up very well, Patrick. Um, so, so that was his first narrative feature film, and really the first film he directed since um, the Silent World that he did with Jacques Cousteau. He was sort of a glor- like co-director at best, but really just he was helping Jacques Cousteau get the movie made. Um, we're going to jump ahead to the last movie he made, but I think the only way we can really give an impression of Louis Malde's depth and like what, what defined his career, if we sort of touch on all of the stuff he did in between that. So he followed up Elevator to the Gallows with The Lovers, which was a drama about a married woman who's having an affair and sort of the crisis she has uh, when her husband invites her lover over to their home uh, for dinner. The Lovers was a notable film. Um, it was a landmark film in America because it was brought up on obscenity charges. Um, there is a sex scene that for the 50s was pretty graphic, though you watch it now and you're like, this is very tame. It's like you see, you know, there's there's some nipple for like three seconds, but there's not a lot of nudity. And the sex itself is like super tasteful and just like delicate and sensual and beautiful. But it is a it is a sex scene sort of focused on Jean Moreau's pleasure and like a sex scene focused on a woman's pleasure is seen as more as more obscene. And you and there is some brief nudity. So it was brought up in obscenity charges in America and it led to the Supreme Court ruling uh, with the famous phrase, I, you know, I don't know pornography, but I know it when I see it. Um, that is about this film. So of historical interest, not necessarily an amazing film. Um, there was Zazie Dans Le Metro, which is a very raucous comedy. Uh, it was an adaptation of a, of a novel that was sort of playing with language, and in it, Louis Malle tried to play with film language. Um, he did The Fire Within, which is an existential film about a man who is suicidal, um, sort of visiting all of his past friends and contemplating whether or not he's going to die. He did Viva Maria, which was a another sort of raucous uh, comedy, this one about a revolution in Mexico. 
An unnamed Central American country. An unnamed Central American country where these two burlesque performers basically uh, it's overthrow very, it's the very government. It's very hashtag girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thing that sort of changed him was a documentary he made uh, in uh, India called Phantom India. And with the same footage that he shot Phantom India with, he uh, had a narrative or a theatrical documentary called Calcutta. And that was a movie in which he didn't have a plan. He didn't have a script. He didn't really have an idea or a structure. He just thought he would go to India with a camera, follow his muse, um, observe what's happening, shoot it, shoot, shoot for, you know, I think months and months and months. He was in India shooting this film when he got back, he made a nine-part, I think it's like nine-part, uh, extremely long series that did screen theatrically some places and aired on French television. Um, and this is sort of... this. So, so to me, Louis Maul is a director who is very relentlessly curious, and he is, in all of his projects, he is trying to accomplish something, and that something is rarely the same from project to project, but there is something that he is after and he's, he's curious about. He's like, would this work? What would happen if... This And this is a movie that I think unlocked, um, it sort of loosened him up. I feel like a lot of the movies he made post uh, Phantom India are, are a lot more humanistic because um, that was 1969. And after that, in the 70s, he made the autobiographical film Murmur of the Heart, which is both a coming-of-age comedy and also a tender incest melodrama. It's a very strange film. He made La Combe Lucienne, which is a very confrontational movie about French occupation and sort of the nature of fascism. Um, he made Black Moon, which is a dream project. Uh, he described it as a dream within a dream. And it is, it's, you know, it is not driven by logic. It is sort of uh, driven by instinct. Um, after that, he went to America where he made Pretty Baby, a uh, film with Brooke Shields and Susan Sarandon um, about uh, child prostitution. Again, a film uh, that a, a very taboo subject matter that he handled with great sensitivity. I have not seen Pretty Baby, but the, its reputation is one of, it's very, again, sensitive and humanistic and focused on characters and not at all sensational despite the, um, just despite the subject matter. He made Atlantic City, which was a, a sort of a character-driven crime film with an aging Burt Lancaster as this very small-time crook who sort of has big dreams of one last score. Um, he made My Dinner with Andre, which was you know a, a seminal independent film that was literally just a film about uh, Andre Gregory and um, Wallace Shawn having a long conversation over dinner. Um, and it was a project that was spearheaded by Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory that was sort of built out of them wanting to experiment with the form. And Louis, in, in Louis Mall, they found a perfect sort of partner uh, of someone who also was wanted to just see what would happen if we made a movie like this. My Dinner with Andre is probably his best known movie just because it is sort of this touchstone for like, um, even people who don't care about film, My Dinner with Andre is an easy reference point for like, oh yeah, it's one of those talkie movies where it's just people talking and nothing happens. Um, it's sort of almost like a joke reference, but it's also you know just a fascinating movie. He made a comedy in America called Crackers. During his time in America, he also was still doing documentaries. He made um, 
documentaries uh, like God's Country in 1985 about Northern Wisconsin. He made And the Pursuit of Happiness, which was a in 1986, and that was a movie about uh, immigrants into America. He, I believe, he made most of his documentaries the same way he made Phantom India, which was he just sort of went to. He had a subject he wanted to know more about it, and he brought his camera as he learned. Um, and he's just this sort of relentlessly curious observer who just he gets all up in people's shit and asks them a bunch of questions because he just finds people so fascinating. Um, he made a sort of a pseudo-Western about uh, fishermen and Vietnamese immigrants having a war in Alamo Bay in Texas. Um, at this, his time in America, he was married to Candace Bergen and he was you know, working pretty much exclusively in America. Uh, he had kind of lost his credibility with the French uh, critics and the French audiences. He, he was sort of almost uh, viewed as a Benedict Arnold of sorts who sold out the dream. But he did return to France to make uh, one of his most uh, revered films, Au Revoir Les Enfants, which was an autobiographical film about his time in a Catholic boarding school and the uh, Jewish boy that was hiding there in secret um, that he became friends with. Uh, so again, another more autobiographical film of uh, that that French occupation, Nazism, why you know uh, why people have hate and why in in how people fail each other in times of crisis and stuff is something that pops up in a lot of his movies. Um, and this was sort of the first time in 1987 that he. Uh, sort of faced it head on, um, and uh, he made he he wanted to make more films that I'm not familiar with, so I'm not going to try to <laughs> sum them up. Uh, but he, in 1994, he made another project with Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn, who made uh, My Dinner with Andre, uh, Vanya on 42nd Street. So, the project of Vanya on 42nd Street originated when um, Andre Gregory got a bunch of actors together to sort of run the, just sort of run the checkoff play Uncle Vanya. Um, this started in 1989 and went all the way to 1994. So it was five years of them running rehearsals. And the, the stated goal was they were going to see where it took them and they were not going to do it with a performance in mind. So most plays, you know, you rehearse, you know, if you're lucky, you rehearse for a couple months. If you're not lucky, you rehearse for a month or so. And then at the end of the day, you, you put on some shows. And if it's successful, you put on a lot of shows. And if it's not successful, you put on a few shows. And then it's done. And then it's over. Um, this was not done in that way. There was no set blocking. This was about what the actors could bring to the roles in any given time. At a certain point, after five years of doing this, it became clear that it couldn't go on. It was too hard to align everyone's schedules. People were getting busy and, and working. The, the cast included people like Julianne Moore, um, who was becoming popular uh, in 1993. She was in uh, Shortcuts, which I think was sort of her big... Uh, it wasn't the first film she made, but it was sort of the film that got her a lot of notice and led to her making other films like Safe and um, sort of becoming an, uh, a darling of independent uh, film of the 90s. Um, Brooke Shields... Uh, not Brooke Shields. Brooke Smith. Brooke Smith. Brooke Shields is in Pretty Baby. Brooke Smith was in uh, Silence of the Lambs uh, as the senator's daughter. So she she was a character actor who was getting more notice. It was harder for them to get together. So they decided to cap it off, what if we shot a movie? And then that would be the thing that exists. And Vanya on 42nd Street is that movie. And it is fascinating for a lot of reasons. Now, um, 
Regina, I would, am I correct in assuming this is sort of the movie that you were introduced to Louis Maul through? Um, I think so. I might have seen my dinner with Andre first, but, um. This is the one that sort of stuck with you. Yeah, yeah. I would say, I would say like, I saw, I saw Vanya, um, a few years ago and I was automatically like, oh, this is my favorite film. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of agree with Mindy Kaling that like favorite is a tier. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, this was my, my, fir- my first time rewatching it uh, since that first experience with it. And I would still say that it is one of my favorite movies. I think, I think this was my first time uh, maybe like noticing Louis Maul. Mm-hmm. If you, okay. So Regina, if you had to describe to someone what, what made um, Vanya on 42nd street, a special movie. How would you how would you describe like what sets us apart from other play adaptations? Um, well, I think a lot of times when you're talking about like a, be, be, I mean, because this is a film that is like an adaptation of a play, but it's 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 more like a a filming of a staging, and I feel like those are two very different things. Where it's like if you have like like a play adaptation, like oh god, I don't even know. Um, you know, like My Fair Lady or something, mm-hmm. where it's like it's like it's a it's a film and uh, versus like a a recording of a staged version, where it's like it's like sometimes if if you have like a successful show on Broadway, there will be like a a you know DVD version mm-hmm. of it that you can get. You can be like um, Hamilton and yeah, 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 like Hamilton. <laughs> um, you know, so I I kind of feel like this is a very. Um, interesting overlap of those two things you know where um you know if you if you have like like a like a film adaptation like you're going to take it off the stage you're going to put it in you know you know either either like like shoot it on like a a, a, a you know like like a like a lot or you know actually like go on location and like bring it somewhere and it's going to be like like in like a you know quote unquote real setting um you know or if it's like you know a a sort of recorded version of the stage then it's going to be like more more static and removed if that makes sense you know and then it's like you have you have an audience there you can hear the audience reaction to 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 jokes or like applauding after big musical numbers so it's it's like that like those feel like two very different things but i feel like you know with vanya um it, it really merges those two things. Um, I, I, something that really struck me on the second watch was how, um, y- you know, th- this is a project that had been going on for, for quite some time, and, and by sort of its its conclusion, um, you know, it was it was a rehearsal of Vani. That's how they describe it at the. Be- that's how like Andre Gregory describes it at the beginning of the movie, um, but you know, they would invite like a small like small audiences to come see and by the end it was like a very exclusive kind of experience um you know where where very famous people would would go see it like uh you know very famous directors would would go see it um they didn't mention any names um in like the making of documentary they did mention mike nichols well they mentioned that he went to see it but then they, they were also talking about like that there were some like big name director directors who wanted to make a film version mm-hmm. they didn't mention like specifics but um you, you, you know so, so this wasn't just like like something that they were doing in someone's living 
living room. Like it was, but it wasn't because it was also like like this, you know, very like exclusive. I I, I guess talked about probably in in their community. Well, uh, I mean, experience. both Wallace Shawn and Andre Gray. Obviously, Wallace Shawn, a beloved character actor, but even before that, he was well known and very influential in the New York theater he, world. He, yeah, yeah. And he, Andre yeah, Gregory, yeah. extremely famous director yes. from that same world. Yeah, Andre and, Gregory. And theater teacher, yeah. Um, if you've seen My Dinner with Andre, you have a very good idea of the kind of guy he is. But if you yeah. haven't, then he is someone who is an exper- He was very much into experimental theater. He was someone who is into improvisation. He was into um, long rehearsal periods. He was into sort of letting directors gu- or actors guide where projects would go. Um, experimenting with form and things like that. So this is the sort of thing that when these two stalwarts of the theater world like are doing this thing, you you want in. Yeah. So Vanya is like almost a documentary, right? Mm-hmm. Because because it's it, I mean it is like you know it is a play. You know you do have like Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, but then you have like this this project that Andre Gregory and and his cast were doing. So so the the purpose sort of the meta purpose of the film is is pretty much to to document that. Right. Um so you know so it's it's like you you have the you have it opening and you see like like the cast they're coming in from the subway and they're walking down the sidewalk and it starts and like Andre Gregory shows up and Wallace Shawn is there and Wallace Shawn is like, "Oh, this is my friend Mrs. Chow. I met her in Berlin and she'd like to watch the rehearsal." And Andre Gregory's like, "Of course, come on in." And then and then they have like a little conversation. It is like the fakest moment in the whole movie and it's like ostensibly like the real part of the movie the like real framework around the play but it is like so obviously artificial and even even like like the way that the actors are showing up to the performance space kind of like gives you like a little hint of like who their characters are going to be and what the dynamics are. So so the thing about this that's important to know about this movie is though in some ways it is documentary-like and in some ways it borrows the aesthetics of documentaries, it is in fact rigorously constructed despite the fact that when they were doing the rehearsals, they sort of, they they give an example in in one of the special features on the Criterion where they talk about um, you know, it starts off and the doctor's and you know, the doctor, the character of the doctor in Uncle Vanya is very up and he has sort of high energy and people go off of that and like that is how the play usually starts and then at some point someone comes in with lower energy and, and everyone sort of is reacting to each other in the way theater does. But one time he was absolutely miserably depressed, so he started the play with low energy and then everyone else came in and brought it even lower and it, it just they weren't driven by like, well, that's not how we do this. That's not how we rehearsed it. Their every given performance was just based on how they were feeling. There was no set blocking or anything. For the film, there was absolutely set blocking because you need the editing to match. You know, you can't have a scene where someone's having giving a monologue in in one shot. They're sitting down, and the other they're all the way on the other side of the stage standing. Yeah, like, and, and there, there's a moment where um, where where Julianne Moore's character has a, a soliloquy um, where she is weighing her options about um, how to meet a request that Brooke Smith's character asks of her. And she's kind of sorting through her emotions and um, it's, it's a voiceover. Like, like, like she doesn't like, like Julianne Moore, it's a close up on her face the whole time. And, and she doesn't move her lips once. I mean, I mean, she is like having uh, to, to, to steal a, a, a Kimmy Schmidt, a face journey 
<laughs> where she's like, sure. where, where she's absolutely like, like in the moment. I mean, she, she's an incredible actor. Um, where she's like absolutely like, like in the moment and like, and like you know, really mulling over this decision. Um, but it's it's so like, like, like even because like I'm sitting there and I, and I was trying to think like. So how are they actually doing this in that moment? And I was kind of wondering, like, like, well, maybe they like recorded her and they were playing it, but like, it's obviously done in post. Like, yeah. like the sound editing itself is done in post, right? So it's, it's and not, it's the like, only it's the only non diegetic moment of the film. Yes, the, the movie yeah. opens and closes with jazz music playing over the opening and ending credits. Um, but other than that, there's if there's music in the play, it's because a character is playing the guitar. It's yeah. If there's sound effects, um, it is ostensibly because there is sound happening on stage or outside of the theater where they're performing it. I think maybe it might make a little sense at this point to uh, roughly go over what the plot of Uncle Vanya is as we discuss sort of, because not, it's not just about watching these actors as themselves. It is watching, you are also watching them as characters and it is moving because of their performances as these characters. So it is a, it is an actual adaptation of Uncle Vanya. Yeah. It's not necessarily just like, it's not uh, what's there's a there's a documentary the the uh, I forget the the documentary filmmaker uh, who made the, the the cast recording of Company where you're just sort of seeing them hang around backstage and it's like you get lost in that you you suspend your disbelief and you see them as characters you don't see them as the actors the, yeah that's yeah. so like, I, like there is like the setup of like like what is this theater where are they what are they doing but then yeah it's just it's just you're you're kind of there so the setup yeah, and then the very uh, I would I would call out the transition from the uh, reality into the play is uh, very subtle and I think very well done. It's, you you you're in the play before you realize you're in the play. Oh yeah. Oh God, it's cool. It's, it's it's magic. It is like it's like that. That to me is like is like the the magic of theater is like that that moment in this movie. So the story of Uncle Vanya is it is this it is um, late nineteenth century Russia. It is this sort of. Um, uh, uh, they're in a very rural area. They're in a very rural area in a sort of uh, aging. Uh, it's a somewhat implied crumbling kind of a country estate. Um, this country estate is owned by a professor because it was the dowry of his first wife. Um, the, she has died, but her brother Vanya still works on this estate along with um, the daughter uh, from that first marriage, Sonia. Um, Sonia and Vanya work the estate while the professor lives in the city and sort of pursues intellectual interests and writes papers and, you know, uh, it writes academic theories about art and things of that nature. Um, because Vanya loved his sister so much, he agreed to do this, but when his sister died he began to realize that like maybe the professor is not the great thinker. Like he, maybe he didn't dedicate himself to a great philosopher that bettered mankind. Maybe the professor is in fact kind of a nothing and a failure in his, in his field. And that Vanya's dedication to maintaining this man's lifestyle was wasted. Um, he sort of commiserates with Astroff, a, uh, a local doctor um, who Sonia, uh, Vanya's niece is in love with. Um, Julianne Moore and the prof Julianne Moore plays the professor's new wife, and it is the story takes place when the professor and his new wife come back to the estate, and all these sort of simmering resentments 
come to a boil. Yeah. And Vanya is in, also in love uh, with uh, the new wife. Yeah, the, the action uh, of the Yelena play... Yelena is the name of the character. Yeah, the action of the play starts... Like, I think it's implied that, that the professor and Yelena have been at the estate for several months. Mm-hmm. And, the, and like their visit is going to go on indefinitely. And then, yeah. So... And then it's, it's like the last three or four months of their stay at the estate is like the, the timeline of the action of the play. So it is a... There's, there's really four central characters that the play is concerned with. There's more characters. Um, there, there's, there's a nanny who raised Sonia and it sort of works as a maid. There is Vanya's mother um, who loves her son-in-law and um, doesn't necessarily want... Uh, want him his work to be diminished. Um, there, there is uh, Waffles, who who is this sort of just like utterly beautifully stupid uh, sort of s- servant who 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 works the estate. Um, just a big ray of dumb sunshine. Just very fascinating character, Waffles. But the main four main characters are Vanya, Yelena, the new the new wife played by Julianne Moore. Astroff, the doctor, played by Larry Pine. Uh, Vanya's played by Wallace Shawn, by the way. I don't know if it said that. And Sonia, uh, played by Brooke Smith. And at any given point in any given scene, the, the play could be viewed as one of them as the protagonist. They are all equally rich in depth and complexity, and they all have complex inner lives, and they all are sort of thrown into turmoil over the events of the film. And I, I guess I'm, I'm only setting that up because like, I do think it is so good as an adaptation um like part of part of what makes this such a good adaptation is just they've fucking rehearsed it for four years and yeah. like you I, and, I, and it's like i promise you you have never seen a movie or a play where they got to rehearse for four years because that's just totally financially um unfeasible for almost everything ever like no one gets you don't get to get that deep into a character you make choices about your interpretation of a character fairly quickly in the world of film and theater because that is the financial reality is that just people can't just rehearse forever unless they decide that rehearsing forever is the thing they want to do. <laughs> um, and so all the, all the characters are really lived in and they really understand that and they really feel like real people. Um, and uh, gosh, it's, it's hard to know where to start on this movie because there's just so many things about it that are so great, but like, it, it's just a straight, without all of the metatextual stuff, without all the fascinating layers that are brought in as you're sort of watching it as almost a documentary and it's almost self-reflexive and it's almost like not a play because they're, they're just wearing street clothes. There's no costumes. The props are very minimal. Like people drink from, I love New York coffee cups on stage. There's, there, there's anachronistic touches all over the place because it's, that's not what the focus of the performance is. Um, so, like, all those things are fascinating. But just as an adaptation of Uncle Vanya, it is just so compelling. Um, I, feel, I feel like I've, uh, we've been going on for a while. Robert, uh, where, how, yeah, um, where did you first see this movie and how did, how did it land with you? Um, I saw it uh, yesterday on... Uh, Amazon Prime on a, a very <laughs> terrible <laughs> uh, transfer, but I was uh, totally captivated by the the, the film, and uh, I, I think it's 
uh, Mal has a, a bunch of ways he could go with it. I mean, he could have focused on this crumbling theater as a metaphor um, of their crumbling estate in their lives, but uh, that's almost kind of ignored. It's there. I mean, it's this, this, is this wonderful found space, which we get a glimpse of, uh, but they... But uh, the way he shoots it is very intimate and focused on the performance and what a performance it is by the whole ensemble here. Um, I mean, it's there's single shots, uh, uh, two shots, uh, maybe expand a little bit for the uh, when they when they have more of the ensemble on the stage. But it's really people talking and seeing their face and the, the very subtle reactions they're making. He does basically the opposite of what uh, most uh, film adaptations do which they kind of like to open it up and this is not he's uh, intimately focusing in and uh, I think he's drawing our, our attention in with it too just on the story and the characters and uh, I, I think the language is uh, uh, wonderful too I know Mamet did the adaptation and the translation and I think Mamet's translation is I, I, you could ask for a better translation. It's it's it flows really well. It's it mm. still maintains the nineteenth century uh, Russian character, but but it's not. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It feels like it's a nineteenth century uh, story told with the language of today. And uh, yeah, I I find all of that was just uh, uh, captivating. Um, I mean, it's. Every every choice made just seems to be here are the characters, here's the story. We're just going to focus on this, and we're going to put all our attention on it. And yeah, we're going to cut away every now and then to well, we'll take an intermission break uh, while everybody gets uh, gathers around the craft table, and then we'll get back <laughs> into it. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a very lean spare. I mean, the the backgrounds are basically black most of the time. Um, but it, it everything works. I, I mean, I can't imagine a better adaptation. So one of the things that's interesting about this movie is, uh, Regina, you were talking about um, like the least convincing acting in it is sort of all the stuff where they're just like, oh, we're just getting out of the subway and walking to the theater, and it's like, and I'm and Julianne Moore and Brooke Smith are running together to cross the street, and yeah. and Andre Gregory's like, what is this? And it's like eats part of Wallace Shawn's Kanish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and all of that. And what's funny is the actual very first image of the movie is a documentary thing, which is it's just a footage of the street of, of crowds of people walking by because it isn't on 42nd Street. It's a very busy, populated part of New York City and Manhattan. Um, is there's just a guy wearing like Nike or Reebok or something, just a guy in athletic wear, and he just sort of notices that Louis Mall has a camera or someone has a camera pointed at him, and he just looks directly into the camera. And you know mm-hmm. that's not an actor. He's not a cast member. He's just a guy that was on the street and was like, oh, the guy with the camera, what's this about? Okay, and then he walks off. And it's this, it starts with this documentary moment, and it invites you to openly question because it immediately follows that with the more stagey moments where it's, uh, where yeah, Wallace Shawn introduces Madame Chow or whatever and all that stuff, and it's in and so it's openly asking you to sort of question uh, what is what is staged and what isn't and what is real and what like what is the nature of performance even like what you know when when these people are playing these characters what parts are really them and what parts are the characters mm-hmm. when um, when Julianne Moore comes so even the opening of the film is a little stilted in a way the rest of the film isn't 
um, because it does start off and it's it's the start of a play so it is one of those things where um, there is a certain amount of exposition that needs to happen there is a certain amount of I am going to say something that reveals what our relationship is and I'm going to re- say something that reveals our relationship um, but by far for me the best performance in the movie is Julianne Moore um, who plays Yelena uh, as sort of this uh, ner- like ball of anxiety almost but like like sort of defined by her nervous laughter and but she's also just so beautiful and full of life and radiant and in the play in the story she is like this person who is just like everyone's lives are like the country doctor he just sees death and disease day in and day out he never gets a chance to rest and it's just wearing on him he doesn't know like when he's going to lose it because he just can't take it anymore yeah. and and you know he's also like like has has a real problem with alcohol, and he and he yeah. he is developing a drinking problem because of it. And Vanya is a man who's in his late forties and realizing that the thing he has dedicated his life to it was not what he thought it was, and he doesn't know how he's supposed to reconcile that with anything. And his his solution is just to sort of grumble and complain about everything. And Sonia is this girl who's very intelligent and smart. I think she's like supposed to be seventeen or something along those lines, mm-hmm. but. She's very plain, and she's in love with the doctor, but the doctor doesn't even notice her. So she just, every time the doctor <laughs> comes to visit, which is a lot because the professor has a lot of uh, ailments, uh, real or imaginary, it's not quite sure because it seems to change every day. But uh, the doctor is constantly there, and Sonia is constantly just like longing after him, and it's just really heartbreaking because she, she just can't say anything, and she's and she just does she feels inadequate, but like Yelena is like just beautiful and she's vivacious and she's she just everything orbits around her when she enters the scene and that's how the play works too where Julianne Moore the actor is so real and so human and has such a live wire energy everyone gets better whenever she's in a scene all the performances mm-hmm. get better Wallace Shawn as Vanya is better when it's Wallace Shawn as Vanya with Yelena um and it's and the that is a fascinating thing to me to watch to realize that like they're actually getting better because of this actor but also the characters are getting better because of this character and again that like the the lines between fiction and reality are kind of blurry and because of Andre Gregory's approach where he wants people to bring themselves he doesn't want people to sort of construct a character he wants people to can be themselves and sort of bring their real energy to things like you do look at that and you are sort of partially invited to just sort of almost voyeuristically gawk at this as if it's you're watching uh Julianne Moore's process and being like is that her as an is that her as a person you think do you think when she comes onto a set like everything kind of lightens up and like when she was on the set of safe do you think everyone's just like oh it's Julianne like and then, and like <laughs> Um, which, which, in, which in turn is fascinating because it's almost like this, like it's an examination of what she was not a movie star in 1994 when this movie came out. She was sort of a hot up and coming actor, but she was not really a movie star. She was in small movies, but like that is what this that is what stardom is. That is what like what movie star personas is and how they work is that we see John Wayne 
um, in so many movies playing the same kind of character that all we need to do at a certain point is just see John Wayne walk into frame and we go, okay, I know that guy. <laughs> and like, that is what... And, now it's going to get interesting. Right. And, and like part of, and part of what us saying, I know that guy is, is us saying, I know what that guy's like in interviews. I know what he's like on The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, this is what he stands for as a quote unquote American, politically, whatever. Like, that is what movie stardom is. Um, that's sort of why Tom Cruise's star kind of fell when he joined Scientology and people sort of were like, oh, you're really unrelatable now. And there was this sort of Tom Cruise uh, uh, sort of crisis where it was like, oh yeah, all your charisma is not, it's not getting you out of this one because we know you in real life. And like the way Julianne Moore operates in this movie as this sort of ball of light that just sort of illuminates everything around her, like, Brooke Smith is very, very good in this movie, but the scenes where Brooke Smith has with Julianne Moore, she's incredible. <laughs> and like, they have these scenes where they're like, just sort of, you know, there's this lingering resentment because Yelena is the second wife of her father. And, you know, so there's always that sort of stepmother thing of like, you're not replacing my mother. I love my mother and you're not my mother and that sort of thing. And they and these two characters have this resentment and the scene where they sort of just have it out and they just decide that, they're going to get over that and they're like no 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 let's let's be adults let's be friends they um you see brooke smith going off of julianne moore's energy where a scene starts one way and julianne moore sort of pulls her and they just nervously like, giggle together and it's absolutely incredible i love the dynamic that um julianne moore's elena has with wallace sean's vanya um i've only seen one stage production of Vanya and it was this very like postmodern kind of kind of take so it wasn't like a like a classic um Uncle Vanya but um in the in the film they have this gorgeous dynamic where he is like desperately in love with her and I think she gravitates to him as like you know they're they're very isolated um from the kind of society that she's used to. And, and I think it's, it's like where like Vanya is this like really intelligent, funny, witty guy. So she's like gravitating to him as like the friend that she has in this like desolate, you know, forest swamp estate that, that she's found herself uh, languishing in. So she does have an affection for him, but it is platonic and he is like, really really into her and so and, and let's it be known he is he, oh yeah he's not yeah. hiding it at oh all. yeah he he's like he's kind of a creep about it he like, is he's he's physically you know he touches her he he goes and kisses her. like he's yeah he's doing it's 19th century russia so yeah her well. she kind of nervously laughs and you know turns her head or whatever but she yeah. doesn't feel he's, the need he's very much in her personal space <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and 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 just like like her dynamic between like yeah, where we where she's having this very like like fawning, freezing kind of kind of response where it's like she doesn't want to hurt this person that she cares about, but she also doesn't want him to fucking touch her. Yeah, uh, <laughs> not that I can relate, um, but but yeah, where it's just like like and they're both so human, and and I think you're right where it's like. It's like she is. Ha- I mean, I mean, because like she's an incredible actress, and because they have been working on this dynamic for so long. It's it's like I could so easily see a version of this where he is like 
where she is like finding busy work on the stage and is just sort of like zigzagging back and forth. And he's like following her from like five feet away and they're just yelling at each other. And it's like super boring. Like, at, at one point in the play, Sonia describes Vanya as a cloud on a le- following her around like a, a cloud, cloud on a leash. leash. I love that. <laughs> it's a great line. Um, but, but yeah, it's just because, and, and, and just like with the intimacy of, of the camera and like how everything is just so, so dark. Like it, I mean, yeah, it, it it just it just brings this work to life in a way that I think would be very difficult to replicate on stage. Maybe not not impossible, but I mean I mean the, I mean I mean yeah, the, this this movie is like it's lightning in a bottle. I think something else um just just to ki- kind of talk a bit about like um you you're talking about like like the like the shots of of New York and like the neighborhood that they're in when it's opening. Um to kind of go back to like the, the environment being one that's crumbling, um, something that really struck me was how this is like right before um, Rudy Giuliani really gentrified Midtown. So it's like you see like the graffiti and you see like the adult movie theater and like, I mean, th- there was like a complete transformation of that neighborhood. So, I mean, I mean, that theater that they were in was like, re- was like, you know, bought and and completely renovated, and now that's where they do like Disney Broadway productions. Like <laughs> like like a decade later, it was the, you were seeing the Lion King at the New Amsterdam. So I mean, you, so it's like you're also seeing this like, and, and I mean, I, I I don't know, maybe I mean, you know, Andre Gregory Wallace Shawn. I think they're both like New York guys. I know for sure Wallace Shawn is they're like, like they're both born and raised in New York. Yeah, so I I think you know they they might have known like like what way the wind was blowing and like maybe that was an intentional thing. But it's, it was also just really interesting to kind of see where it's like, like like where it is kind of looking at you know um, at, at like at like things that are that are crumbling and things that are about to end and also asking these questions of like how are people going to think about us in the future? What are we doing today? And like what are people going to say about us? you know, a hundred years from now and, and just seeing like how that neighborhood is like completely different now. I think this is absolutely a film about gentrification. I think <laughs> so. So one of the things about this movie is that, um, <laughs> I mean, if, 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 if Robert's cat wants to chime in with something, we could... <laughs> I, I think she thought Jim was uh, going to be here, but <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, do you have anything to say uh, about the uh, about the M M&M and M store in <laughs> Times Square? <laughs> um, no. So this is a play about to a certain to a certain extent. This is a play about environmentalism. This is considered one of the very first fictional works that brings up the topic of environmentalism. The character of Astroff the Doctor is someone who, when he was a more ambitious, uh, perhaps idealistic man. We catch him sort of towards the end of this part of his life as he sort of declines in alcoholism. But he was someone who planted forests, who wanted to sort of um, renew the resources of Russia and saw the, you know, balance of mankind as nature as something that was very tricky. And he's talking about, you know, the destruction of resources and things being chewed up and there not being anything left. And the professor is someone like that who he views the estate as a means to an end. The professor, the the work that is done, the the people who live on the estate who pay their rent, the the crops and stuff that the estate produces, all of these things, the most of the money goes to him so he can live his life as an intellectual and 
the, in the climactic scene of the movie, he goes, oh, I've, I, I, you're going to love this. I've came up with a great idea. Right now, we have an estate that yields 2% profit, but we could sell it and then invest in 4 to 5% bonds, and we'll be getting 4 to 5% interest instead of the 2% that we're getting every year. Can you imagine 4 to 5%? And what he's saying is, you know this thing that you have dedicated your entire life to? It's this number, and I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to make this number appear instead. And during this scene, they're all sitting at a long table, and Wallace Shawn has an I Love New York coffee cup mm. on the table with him. And they are in a crumbling theater that there is netting to catch the plaster that is falling from the roof um, because this, cause it has fallen into disrepair. And this man represents the people who only view these things as numbers and as money. And obviously we now live in a world where that is a, not only is the crisis much more severe, but also we live in a world of NFTs and the blockchain and shit like that, where we literally have people destroying the environment to make the numbers move around um, and to speculate uh, money and stuff like that. So it's even more uh, sort of resonant to me now uh, than it was when I first saw the film. But um, I think this is, and there's, there's a scene where, um, he, uh, where Astroff, the doctor, is talking about the trees he has planted in the forest that he has sort of restored, and he says, "When I'm near, when I, I, when I see the forest, I can hear it sighing." And in that moment, you hear cars honking outside <laughs> of the theater. And because of the nature of how this was filmed, this was not a single performance where they just set up multiple cameras and shot what they could. It's actually very well composed. It was thought out. They really thought about. They did rehearsals where they walked around with video cameras, and that was where they figured out where they were going to play stuff. But when they actually did it, they did it. They shot it like a traditional movie. They did multiple takes. They did this scene. Okay, now we're going to do the coverage, so we're going to shoot Julianne Moore's close-up, and we're going to do it this scene again. Like, it's shot like a real movie. And part of the, the only way you can build a movie like this out of all of that kind of shooting style is if you don't have a lot of ambient sound. Because if you could actually hear outside of the theater any given moment then it just wouldn't match and you would cut and then all of a sudden it would be like, oh, there's a, there's a car and there's people yelling and they weren't yelling before. Where'd that come from? So when they add that car in, that is an artistic choice. He added that in post. Mm. That's not something that it just happened to catch. Um, so I really think that when he's talking about the environment, they're talking about whether it's the theater world or New York City in general, they are talking about something that they're feeling slip from their fingers. They could be talking about film. Louis Maul is someone who defined his career by taking big chances and being given opportunities to just sort of see what might work. And as his career went on, and his, especially his run of films in between Au Revoir, Les Enfants, and this one were less successful, he probably found his chances to direct harder and harder to come by. Um, mm -hmm. They, you know, they could be talking about the film industry, um, but I do think that is sort of one of the things that is the heart of this movie and the thing that makes it personal for these people who are performing it is it is about people sort of coming to terms with their mortality and coming to terms with things ending. And, um, and it is about, I do think explicitly about gentrification mm -hmm. um, and there are, Choices like that, uh, also choices like that. The the other thing they accomplish is this movie captures the feeling of watching a live theater performance, not just because it's great actors on a stage and there's not a lot of excessive props and everything, so you really feel like they're on stage. It captures that feeling 
because one of the great things about theater is there is a little world in a music box and there's three walls and that's, you know, or maybe just one wall and, and two curtains and that's the world and you get sucked into it and it becomes real even though at some point someone's going to be saying a line and then you're going to hear the train go by or a car <laughs> is going to honk at another car and you're going to hear that outside. And it, when you see live theater, it's like you're almost like huddled into this uh, little cubby where you're like, this is, I found a secret world in the back of, you know, I found Narnia in the back of the wardrobe. Yeah. And, and, we, and, and, you know, let's get all these people in and we'll all peek inside, especially small intimate theaters. Like in Chicago, there's tons of these kind of black box theaters that are, they don't seat more than 40 people. And that's, you know, uh, and you know, the performances, they don't have to project as much because they're not in these big, massive theaters. They're smaller and they're more intimate. And you're right there. Like, there's not a seat in the house where you're more than 15 feet away from the actors. And you are encaptured in this little world, but it's also just a, it's just a fucking storefront. It's just, you know, it's not insulated. It's not, per- the sound baffling isn't perfect. You're still going to hear other stuff. There might be a second theater that you hear, like some sound effects or something playing. And it creates this feeling of being sort of held and contained, and mm-hmm. it's almost like a cozy feeling when you see live theater. And this movie captures that by by judicious use of when to put in little ambient sound and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It kind of it kind of made me think about um, experiences I've I've had seeing theater that haven't been in um, in like traditional theater spaces, mm-hmm. like. Um, oh, I'm just going to the theater anyway. Um, <laughs> soon, I, I can talk about it. Knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, like I, I remember seeing. Um, there's this play called Phoebe in Winter by Jen Silverman, who's an amazing playwright, and um, it's this like magical realist, like taking place during this very intense fictional war, like like very like like out there, um, experimental, um, heightened language piece. And I saw it performed in a church basement, so it was on these like marble this like this like marble steps and there's there's these like columns it was like this like old like polish catholic church so uh, would, like hold in services Bucktown. in that yeah yeah, yeah. It, it was a weird space because it was like it looked like like maybe like like uh, like like an like a, an overflow space for services maybe during like easter or christmas but also like the kind of space where they're gonna have bingo yeah. and then it just got <laughs> yeah, turned yeah. into this like this like crumbling mansion during a fictional war and and just like like the way that it oh my god it was and and, and yeah and and just like like it, it just made that that like reality whiplash like even more intense you know or seeing like you know even seeing like Shakespeare in the park where it's like it's just this, this sort of like like bleeding of like oh you look over there and people are playing badminton and then you look this way and it's Midsummer Night's Dream and it's this sort of like this like 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 um this like spectrum of reality you know it's mm-hmm. but an interesting yeah. thing about the, this movie is it's not super dogmatic about like we're going to recreate the theater experience it actually right. it starts off that way and then it kind of sucks you in as the characters begin to have like it starts off and they're they're sort of being boisterous and they're not necessarily saying everything that's on their minds they're not necessarily playing all their cards um it starts off, and it's a lot of wide shots. It's a lot of, like, you see the entire ensemble in one shot. In Early on in the first act, it's a four-act play. Um, each act is a single scene um, with a single location. And in the first act, like, very early on, you see a reverse shot where you see the audience watching them. 
Um, but then by the time you get to Act Two, it's suddenly the, everything is at a table, and you see Andre Gregory bring all of the audience to sit on the other side of the table where they're performing. I think the other thing about this that you couldn't do in an actual live performance is none of the characters have to project, so you can just have Wallace Shawn talking like this. And if you saw Wallace Shawn in a theater, like, and you know, when they were doing rehearsals, they would go to like someone's loft apartment or stuff like that. They similarly intimate settings. But if you saw an actual, if you went to the Steppenwolf and saw Wallace Shawn do Vanya like this, you would say, "What the fuck are you saying?" Yeah, it would be <laughs> mad big. Or Julianne Moore having her hair in her face the entire oh, time. Oh yeah, like, like oh you. You demand your money back. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, like, there. So it is. It does uh, sort of play around with things. It's like we can do this on film that we couldn't do in a theater setting. And then by the time you get to the fourth act, you don't know where the audience went. Um, you see the the fourth act starts with a shot where you see the the uh, auditorium and you see the seats, and there's no one there. And at some point, the fourth act ends. And so the way the play starts is. The actors and the audience, they all sort of file into the theater, and the people who haven't been to the theater before are like, wow, this place is so crazy looking. It's so beautiful. Look at those carvings. And it's like, oh, yeah, those carvings are supposedly the faces of different characters from Shakespeare. And, you know, they're giving the history, and people are just sort of grumbling about their week or whatever. And, oh, I'm, you know, I'm running this play over this theater. Oh, I've never heard of that theater. Yeah, there's no reason you would have. Like, there's just sort of grousing and commiserating the way actors do. And then at a certain point... Um, someone rings a bell and it's not some sort of like artsy little like and this will be the magical way we signal the play the bell is actually sleigh bells to indicate horses in the distance Um, but at any rate once you hear those sleigh bells those actors who are having conversations just sort of go into the play and because it starts in media res you know, the way movies do where they'll cut through one dialogue and they'll they'll cut to another conversation and you're sort of jumping in these conversations in the middle Uncle Vanya starts with the doctor um, talking to, is it, is it Vanya's mother that he's talking to? Um, or is it the nanny? He's talking to nanny. He's talking to nanny. And he's just sort of talking about his day or whatever. Um, but it's vague enough that you don't instantly know that the play has started. And similarly, when the play ends, you don't really know the play has ended. Except that, like, sort of there's this feeling of, you know, it's very, it's a very heavy ending of the characters sort of trying to grasp some sort of meaning <laughs> of... Out of out of their work and their labor and what will happen. It's, God, that, it's, it's oh a God, brutal it's, ending. It's so devastating. But, yeah, we're 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 um where you have like this not like, hopeless. It's not like no no no. It's not it's not it's not hopeless but, at all. But yeah, it, it just ends with like with like Sonia, who's like like you know this this you know young woman who who's you know very innocent and, and sweet and like has just had her heart just like absolutely shattered, and she's just like well we'll have to turn to our work and. We're just going to work until we die, but that's going to be okay. We'll be okay. We have a reward in heaven. I know we do. And it's, it's just like like whether or not you believe her, either way, it's, yeah. it's, it's fucking so, devastating. So, so at the end, you see some sense of relief on the actors, like like that sort of, okay, we just finished. There's no, there's no curtain call. There's no bow. The audience does not return. Madam Chow and her husband and those other people, they, they do not come back and they don't applaud. They don't... Andre Gregory walks onto the stage and sort of gives everyone a hug and everyone, you know, everyone just sort of goes, oh, yeah, that felt good, you know? And that's how the movie ends. But, like, the audience vanishes by the end. It's a very interesting choice. And, again, it's not this sort of slavish devotion to 
we have to recreate the, the theater experience. It is like, what about the theater experience says something about this performance and these characters and this story? Um, and in that way, this is, despite the fact that, uh, you know, you might think, oh yeah, it's Louis Maul and he's working with Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn and they, you know, they did the seminal independent film My Dinner with Andre, which is just all about dialogue driven. It's just all about the ideas and it's not a visual, like, it's very much an anti-visual, you know, masterpiece. It's, it is just close-ups and people reacting and Wallace Shawn going, and then what happened? <laughs> and stuff like that. Like, um, you know, you, you might be mistaken in thinking this is the similar film, but this is a very um, visually driven movie. It's just, you know, it's not driven by, you know, elaborate camera moves. It's not driven by um, expressive lighting, it, but it is, it does have, it is an aesthetic movie as much as it is a uh, sort of an intellectual movie. And for me, like a lot of the reason I love this movie is there's just like something very, I talked about like how comfy it, it feels to be watching live theater and to sort of feel like you're sort of in this little world with the, with an awareness that the outside world is, you know, just a mere feet away. And for me, like this movie has a lot of comfiness where it's just like, I like the color of the lights. There's just sort of a warmth, to the glow, the color palette, it's just got this sort of warm glow to it. You know, it, you, you might be, you, you might be tempted to adapt Chekhov and have everything be all pale and gray and, and, and feel like decay and death because that's the themes or whatever. But this is actually a very warm, cozy, like color palette. And I just like the sound of the wood creaking on their chairs and the tables and stuff. Like every, everything about it just feels nice in a way that, just, it's like a completely fascinating movie and it has some of the best acting I've ever seen in anything ever. But also, it's just kind of a comfort food. Like, I kind of just love the act of watching it in a way that um, if all the things we've talked about, all the ideas we've talked about might scare you away. Like, it's also just like an extremely pleasant movie to watch despite it being sort of heart-wrenching and, you know, uh, uh, just... It's not emotionally draining, but it is uh, it is an intense emotional experience. Yeah. And I, uh, I feel that goes back to Chekhov's play, too, which has all these ingredients in there. I mean, I, I think you could spend an hour, hours just picking away. I mean, I, Yelena, I mean, there's a, there's a the sense that she throws everything off of a balance just by being there. People stop doing their work and pay attention to her. Uh, the doctor quits worrying about the future and focuses on her. Uh, I guess Sonia even becomes friends with her because who w- doesn't want to become friends with uh, Yelena? Um, it's, right. It, What's funny is, so so Sonia is in love with the doctor, so the introduction, the audience's introduction to the doctor's philosophy and his uh, environmental conservation is her describing the acts he's doing, and he... He is proud, but he doesn't want to show it. So he's kind of like being, you know, he's sheepish and avoiding eye contact and stuff as she's describing, you know, what a great man he is and how many trees he saved and stuff like that. Um, and you get the feeling that, you know, he does still have that part of him and he, he does, that's, that isn't completely gone away, but it's maybe like not representative of who he actually is as a person to only describe him in those terms. Um, but he gets very animated and very excited about the, uh, you know, the, the desecration of the forest and, and like, and, and the, the subject of environmentalism when it is a tactic to woo Yelena, who he is in love with. (laughs) Like that, that is the only part in the, in the play where he goes into that. And then when he finds out 
that she is not into it. Like the wind goes out of his sails immediately, and he goes, "And you don't you don't care about any of this, do you?" And she just sort of shrugs and's like, "Actually, uh, I I, I kind of only want to talk to you about whether or not you like Sonia." And he's just like, "I I I." I don't even think about Sonia enough to even have an answer for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like not only am I not in love with her, like the concept of love with her, like it's never even crossed my mind. There's also yeah. like, like a, something that kind of gets mentioned very briefly um, at the beginning where um, he was like, like right before the start of the, not right before the start of the play, but very soon before the start of the play, um, he was operating on a patient who died uh during the procedure so he sort of has that kind of like you know overshadowing him so I, I think I think kind of kind of what was said before about how like he could easily be seen as a protagonist where it's like he has these two um like like he has this perception of himself because he's he's obviously just like beating himself up over over this you know this occurrence whereas yeah like like Sonia is kind of kind of talking about like all the good works that that he does and like and like the effect that that has on the on the community as a whole so it's like these two perceptions of him that that he can't quite reconcile with each other he's also also the one who is like asking that repeated question you know will people think of us in 100 years what will our what will our deeds mean 100 Mm -hmm. years from now 200 years from now i think that i think the thing that makes this film so fascinating and this is probably not exclusive to this adaptation of uncle vanya i'm not i'm not i'm no scholar on Chekhov or anything but the thing that makes this movie so fascinating the sort of meta what the thing the metatextual layer adds to it is that uncle vanya has a devastating ending and then you see the actor's sense of accomplishment immediately after you get that sense that they all come together around the table and they're mm-hmm. all just like, Oh my God, you're, you're so great. And you know, Andre Gregory is like the proudest father in the world. And he just, <laughs> you know, he had a reputation. Uh, they talk about this on one of the special features on the, on the criterion where it's like, you cannot bore him. Cause he just wants to see you. He just likes to observe people and he just finds people fascinating. And he's just in love with people watching and watching you. And like, Brooke Smith says, at one point, I actively tried to bore him. I like I was on stage performing, and I'm like, I'm going to do this as boring as possible, and it could not be done. I could I was boring myself, but I could not bore him, and like, um, and a lot of this, a lot of this, ver- a lot of this interpretation of the play is about the warmth and the fellowship that you find in accepting that you're fucked. And finding other people who feel the same, there is this sense of like, oh, yeah, we're fucking doomed. And like, thank God you said it because I feel that too. Yeah. Like, um, there's a there's an absolutely incredible moment where Brooke Smith, sort of, very urgently is asks Yelena when once they sort of break the ice and break down the barriers that were sort of preventing them from being friends. Brooke Smith is just trying to figure out what kind of a person are you, Yelena? She goes are you happy? Like, she's trying to figure out, like, why are you with my father, basically? And she goes, are you happy? And Julianne Moore just starts laughing and goes, no. <laughs> and, then they, and then they both crack up. And it's like, because also Sonia is not happy. And yeah. they both realize, like, there's not really a path to happiness here. Like, and neither of them in their, in their position. Um, I think yeah. Yelena is maybe someone, I don't know if you would um, necessarily, uh, what's, oh, what's, What's the word? But I don't know if you could pathologize it as like um, she has, you know, mental health issues with anxiety, or she's just in a situation that is very anxious for her. But she is someone who everyone is just like, 
you can do anything you want. You are just like beautiful and vivacious and intelligent and whatever life you want to lead, you could lead it. And you are here with this man who keeps complaining about his gout and shows no appreciation for anybody. And, and you were stuck in this, this country estate where like you could be anywhere else right now. Why are you here? And she cannot bring herself to move forward. She cannot bring herself to, affect change on her situation and I, I don't know if she's paralyzed by anxiety or if she is just she is just like this very warm empathetic person who just who does love who does love and care about the professor like he he like she does or at least her, to, her idea of what the professor was when she married him well certainly that was why she you know she she has different ideas now than she did when she married him but it does seem like she does care about him and does want him to feel better and does it doesn't like despise her time with him um and so there's you know maybe she feels this is what she should be doing is like helping this man who can't you know he can't be happy either you know he's uh maybe she can make his life better and there's it's it's really awesome. Like I really love how every character just feels utterly doomed and trapped, but the light comes from them seeing that in each other and being able to connect to that. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is sort of where what optimism does exist in the ending does exist is mm-hmm. sort of Sonia and Vanya now really understand. They have a better understanding of the, the thing that they're in it together and... And there, there's no illusions anymore about yeah. the about like some mythical great you know amazing handsome doctor coming and getting her out of this place or him you know the professor finally noticing him and him not like no they're 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 pretty much they they did their bids and you know they 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 made their attempts they they threw their you know they threw their hats in the ring and that you know they, they they rolled craps and they're done and <laughs> there is this sense of like okay all right but. We're together, together we are doomed. Like together, we're in this situation. Um, and I mean, you know, again, if you're talking about this as a play about environmentalism, like I am someone who has no real faith for the continued existence of you know mankind or whatever. Like I really am pretty fatalistic about the about the future of human beings on this planet. Um, and that to me was very beautiful and resonated with me in a way that tied into the environmentalism themed, which is, you know, maybe, maybe this, you know, it won't be fixed. It, it, the, the thing that needs to happen didn't happen. And what we do now is we live our lives. You know, you are going mm-hmm. to, I forget, Vanya steals the ether and he wants to, he, cause he wants to kill himself. And Sonia, I forget the line exactly. I wish I wrote it down, but she has some line where it's like, you're going to die, but you're going to die at the end of your life in natural ways, the way I am, like the way we all are. Like, yeah, yeah, she's basically like, don't leave me here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's... <laughs> um, They'll be less miserable together. And I would also say Yelena represents something of a savior character for several of the characters. And I think it, they kind of disabuse them all of that. She's not a savior. She's just a person. Who has her own problems, um, and, and probably and not suited because, for country life to begin with. And it is because Julianne Moore is so incredible that never for a moment in any scene is Yelena ever seen as a symbol of their hope. She is seen as a person, and she is also their hope. But she is first and foremost a three-dimensional human being who is has her own inner life and is reacting to everybody around her. 
yeah. a, as a full thinking person and not as a symbol of what they don't have or whatever. And there's a ver- you know it's very easy to imagine a version of the story where she is just sort of like this beautiful icon of mm-hmm. of loss or whatever and not a fully you know f- thinking feeling person. So Chekhov um, doesn't have a very large body of work. Uh, I if I recall correctly, um, he only has maybe. <sighs> four or five full-length plays. And, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure someone's going to like write you an angry email about how I'm not correct. So well, you might want to look this up on your own. Don't listen to me. But, um, but I mean, compared to like other playwrights of his, of his level of, of fame and longevity, he has a, a very um, small body of work. And I haven't, um, I haven't uh, read or seen all of his plays, but um, to, to my recollection, that's sort of an on like a recurring theme is is sort of like um, people who want something about their lives to change quite desperately and see that hope in another person who cannot offer that to them. That's sort of like like the tragedy that occurs in I mean in, in Three Sisters for sure uh, and in The Seagull and um, I haven't read Cherry Orchard so I can't speak that one uh but that seems to be something that he's very interested in um and i and i also and again like like might get be getting like angry emails i might be wrong but um i believe he that's was... i won't forward them to you so <laughs> thank you say whatever Thanks. you want um i believe chekhov was also a country doctor like, like like a doctor in a rural area of russia and that was his his profession um and and being a playwright was was not sort of his you know main profession mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that's also like just very present in, in the material it, in, in, in like, like the, in the script itself. Um, it's also, um, like, like, like kind of what you were saying before about like, like we're fucked, but at least we have each other, each other that kind of, uh, made me think about just like kind of what it's like to, to be in the run of a play where, <laughs> um, <laughs> where, um, so, um, it, it, if, if you are a an actor in a play that has a like like fully funded um, crew, um, that that moment of Andre Gregory showing up at the end and giving you a pat on the shoulder does not happen because the director once rehearsals are over the director's not involved anymore. So the person who you have spent six weeks trying to get approval and guidance from is suddenly gone the the, uh, <laughs> the, the surrogate parent yeah your surrogate parent is 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 is, is fucking as tired of the play as you are <laughs> um but they get to move on with their lives and they don't have to show up to one goddamn performance <laughs> if they don't want to you on the other hand um have to impress a, a room full of strangers for uh, 16 nights in a row. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, and, and yes, yeah, so, so then like, like any, any adjustments? And sometimes at early in the rehearsal process, you go, oh, I was really excited when they cast me, but now that I see the material and what the director's approach is, this isn't a good play. Like sometimes you're yeah. just in a bad play. Yeah, sometimes you're just in a bad play, or a lot of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but no, it, yeah, but it's, it does kind of kind of feel that way where there is that, the, I mean, that, that camaraderie, j- that, I mean, just kind of feels like, like, like part and parcel of being in a play. 
and, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure that like, I mean, I mean, I, I mostly have that perspective, like from an actor, I'm sure like w- with crew, I'm sure it's, it's the same thing. We're, we're just sort of like, like being like the stage manager and the assistant stage manager and running the lights. It's just sort of like, oh my God, I can't even imagine what an ordeal that is, you know? <laughs> um, this you motherfucker know. won't hit their mark. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so so it's uh, this is definitely a a, a film uh, that is uh, that, that speaks very deeply to a, a lot of different aspects of uh, our lives, I guess. It's it's. it's so the reason the reason that this podcast that you're listening to exists right now, if you haven't become aware already, at the di- the difference between how long we talked about Elevator to Gallows, how long we t- we wanted to talk about Vanya on Forty Second Street. It's a it's a film that single handedly is worth a podcast. Um, Louis, the rest of Louis Malle's filmography, though, as I as I sort of described as I went through it, like ton of breadth, a lot of different uh, places he went to. Um, if if no one else has anything else to add uh, about Vanya on 42nd Street, we might want to talk about uh, some other Louis Mall films that we found uh, notable and interesting. Um, Robert, uh, what's one that you would like to talk about? Well, I, I think I'll talk about one of his documentaries, uh, God's Country. Uh, sure. Film. We both watched God's Country as well. Good. Now, my, my parents were both... Uh, my grandparents were both dairy farmers in uh, northern Wisconsin, so I'm familiar with the milieu. Um, so it's that, well, filmed in 1979, and uh, follow up six years later, I guess after Reagan was in office. So we, you, you kind of see uh, some buyer's remorse uh, from it, but I, I thought the it was very charming, and and I, I felt it was very authentic uh, to the period. I I again I like how he opens it up, they're pulling into town, and there's a woman uh, tending a garden, and uh, he just pulls over and talks to her, and I, I felt that was both charming and uh, genuine, and he seems genuinely interested uh, in the people. He compliments her on the beauty of her garden and uh, gets a works a nice little uh, interview out of it, and I, I feel that he does that again and again, uh, just getting people to talk. Um, the highlight probably being the interview with uh, uh, Jean, uh, a young woman who has kind of probably suffered the dark side of uh, some of the cultural norms of the time. But she's kind of progressive, and uh, well, he, she, she's willing to sleep with a, a man, and uh, Mal films her in a fairly tight close-up, not unlike some of the close-ups in uh, Vanya on 42nd Street, and... Uh, I, I feel he gets a very lot of honest emotion out of here, her frustrations and uh, uh, her hopes and uh, what it's like growing up there as a woman and hypocrisy of the church. And it all comes out in, uh, I think, one really uh, compelling and uh, heartbreaking interview there. And she's not back six years later. Uh, she's moved away. And I, I feel that kind of says it all uh, about what's going on with her. Although... Some of the people that have stuck around seem to be doing okay. Some of them are struggling. I, there's a what a machinery salesman that, uh, after the collapse of farm prices, is talking about the uh, posse comitatus and uh, armed revolution. Uh, <laughs> All right. 
Oh, Oof. man. <laughs> it, it certainly feels relevant today when that part came up, so... Cool. <laughs> uh, so, I, I found it a, a very fascinating, and, and just some of the, the <laughs> things that are included in there. There's a, a, a shot where he, they're, they're filming a softball game, and the cameraman takes a foul ball uh, with a visible out. I think it was Louis <laughs> Bell himself. Right. <laughs> those those women in that softball team are so fucking cool. <laughs> they are so funny. And they are so pumped to go to Pizza Ranch. Pizza after the Ranch! Game. Pizza Ranch! There's one woman, you don't see her, but you just hear her just go, go Pizza Ranch, we're going to Pizza Ranch. <laughs> no, that movie that movie's really fascinating. It kind of it kind of reminds me of some of the early work of Errol Morris, uh, Gates of Heaven and uh, you know, Vernon, Florida and films like that. But the thing about it the thing about Errol Morris is Errol Morris. Errol Morris is like he's. I'm not. He's he's not necessarily like super warm. He's kind of like he he kind of is just. He seems like he's he's just sort of gobsmacked at how fucking weird human beings are <laughs> a lot of the time. And even in like stories that have nothing to do with anything, he'll just be like, Wait, what did you do? And it's like, Oh yeah, I cloned my puppy. <laughs> just like, like, like like he just seems to always find like the thing that is just like that's just like actually like we're the weirdest species that has ever existed in any known universe. What the fuck? Whereas Louis Maul is much more about sort of relating. You hear his voice more behind the camera and he seems to genuinely sort of reach out and want to bridge the gap. He's not just like a French man who's just like, isn't America strange? I went to America and it was, you would never, I mean, there's a little bit of that. Like he, like, to be fair, like lawns, the American culture of lawns yeah. is fucking crazy and weird. And, and you want to talk about environmentalism, lawns suck. <laughs> like people should not have lawns really. Um, and he is sort of fascinated as a Frenchman by, by lawn care and people uh, mowing the lawn and stuff like that. And I like when he returns six years later, he's like, but some things don't change. It's just people mowing lawn. But for the most part, he wants to like, like he, he loves the dancing couple at the wedding. You know, he wants to. Oh yeah. I love that. Oh God. That, yeah. that was such a good moment to capture. Oh, um, they're so great. Yeah, he's just, not. Just, he's just he's uh, not, cutting the rug to the polka. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. He's not. He's not trying to be an objective eye. He's not afraid to insert himself, but not in a way that was like the movie opens with him driving up and saying, you know, like I had to find the heart of America. Like a lot of modern documentaries, the problem is that the filmmaker inserts themselves where they don't belong. Um, but Louis Maul's approach is so fundamentally inquisitive that you that he has to be a character. Um, so when he, the way he inserts himself, I, I do want to ask you, uh, Regina, because you watched a couple episodes of Phantom India, the, uh, the several part series that sort of, he started this documentary style, um, on, I believe so. I didn't see the quiet, uh, the, uh, the Jacques Cousteau movie that he made, um, the silent world. So I don't know if this, it was at all that, but I, I don't think the Jacques Cousteau movies were at all like this. What, is, what do you, what for you is the difference between like something like God's country and the Phantom India movie? Um, I th- I think um, I I saw a lot of like structural similarities between God's Country and Phantom India, um, where there is that sort of um, like like uh, situation like one situation kind of flows into the next flow you know into the next um, he in one episode and and he also like like he is the narrator it is like very much like like. 
you, you are very aware of Maul as the observer, um, which I, I think is pretty um, present in, in both. And he says something in Phantom India where he says, we wanted to experience things, not understand them, um, which I, I felt was... Um, Pretty, you know, um, um, pretty much the philosophy of both. Even though, I mean, he made he made Phantom India in the late '60s, um, so you know, um, kind of you know removed in in time from God's Country. But um, I I think um, in Phantom India he is more like like he spends more time being it like in self reflection about like himself as a documentarian um i i think he is sort of taking the history of colonialism into account and like you know like like the the divide between you know him as a as a westerner and um like mostly rural poorer um people in india who he is documenting so there is um more of a divide there mm-hmm. in terms of culture and experience and he's very aware of it until he isn't like, like like he'll say things like you know we are here just to observe and to experience and to not put any meaning into it or not pass judgment and then here are my thoughts about what is going on in the <laughs> scene that I am filming um, <laughs> so but but it, I, I found that to be very charming in a way because it's like, yeah, like, like, you know, setting out to create things and having this very like lofty, um, politically motivated goal and then just not living up to it because you're a human being. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's like as much as you're as like, like, you know, experiencing the, the, the people and the nature and the culture around you. It's like experiencing yourself as like, not, you know, this like flawed human being. Um, so maybe that was a little more present in Phantom India. I mean, of course it was like a, you know, a mini series. So it has a little more time to do that. It's also, it's also, you know, ni- the difference between 1960s France and 1960s India is much greater than the difference between Presumably, he was you know living and working in the U.S. for quite some time before he yeah. made God's Country. Yeah, that's and, true. And granted, you know, northern Wisconsin is a different world from L.A. or New York City, but it's not that different. Yeah, yeah, and there also wasn't the language barrier, like he says in the beginning of Phantom India. Like, like he specifically like, like says like, okay, well, I I talk to like the two percent of you know people in India who are privileged enough to be fluent in English and they spoke to me in like ideas that I'm already familiar with so instead I decided to focus my camera on people who I can't really speak to unless we're speaking through a translator and to not like interview them and just sort of like observe them so it I mean in that sense it was quite different from from God's country but I, I think that sort of um that like artistic motivation was was still there of like just experience this just go with the flow um you know, just 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 try and, and and live in the moment and not assign too much to it. Robert, when um, when you were growing up, how important was the Dairy Queen? <laughs> um, for for me, I, I think with the A and W root beer was the big important one around us. Ah, uh, <laughs> I see. Okay, because that's one of my favorite moments in God's Country. Yeah, just especially like with the, uh... the Dairy Queen being like this cultural center. <laughs> yeah, where they ate twice a day. <laughs> Um, what's another louis mall movie that you'd want to talk about regina um okay it's basic bitch time i'm going to talk about my dinner with andre all right Um, (laughs) i 
this is this is my this was my second time um watching my dinner with Andre um for you know in preparation for this podcast. It is really dense. Um it's I I I mean for for how little is going on and for how like simple of a concept it is it's sort of an exhausting movie to watch in the way that like sometimes like maybe being in a difficult yoga pose and then having to hold that for a while is exhausting um but like the more I think about it the more I like it you know even though it is like like these two guys who in in a sense are kind of difficult to relate to, you know, who, who are these, like, these, like, intellectuals from a different generation, and, you know, you know, the, the way that they kind of parse things is not really how I do, um, but the, I, 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 I don't know, like, uh, like, like, when I was watching it, I was kind of thinking of that, like, meme, like, there are two wolves inside you, <laughs> where I feel like, on one hand, like, I have Wallace Shawn inside me, where it's just, like, like I'm tired. I just want to like you know, be at home and like have that be enough and have like my little life be enough of its own contained thing. And then I also have like the Andre Gregory in me, Gregory in me, who's like, no, I want transcendence. I want these like these like big experiences and to just like you know break my mind open on on just doing something that's like completely out of you know my my regular like realm of experience and like like that's how you find out what it what it all means you know and so it's like this very interesting conversation um between these two um like very different modes of of thinking and these very different modes of like finding meaning in life so it's like ju- just like and and they're also talking like like about like just how difficult it is to connect with another person and how difficult it is to know another person and how difficult it is to like to know what to do with your life and to know what to do with like the world that's changing around you so it's not just about like like Andre Gregory's like like wanting to talk to his friend about like these the, like the crazy last 5 years that he had god knows where he got the grant money to like do you know do all this stuff i i, I, I know that i know that it's a bit of like a, independently wealthy what i just assume everyone in new york is independently yeah wealthy. exactly exactly like 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 and, and i know that that it, like it was written so i'm sure that that it was a bit hyperbolic i don't know if he actually like went out to the desert with a zen buddhist monk to, to recreate uh the little prince like okay dude um, <laughs> <laughs> some of us have to work in the morning yeah, okay yeah. um but, some of us who uh, like that electric blankets to keep us warm at night. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Like some of us like our electric blankets. Um. So, so it's like it's like these very like 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 you know I I I felt drawn to both of these characters for very different reasons. So I mean I mean just like in that sense, um, I find this movie fascinating, but also. Just like like that formal experiment of it is just two guys talking over quail like like it, you know that is all this movie gives you. So I I, I was kind of like the, the second time around like I'm experiencing myself watching this movie and how I am like so hungry for like the normal tools of a film. Mm-hmm. So like whenever you see like the bartender yeah. in the background, I'm like, oh, that's like a political commentary because yeah, yeah, someone's yeah. working and they're like the idle rich. Or like um 
when like Wallace Shawn gets the quail and he's like, oh, they're so small. I'm like, oh my God, this says something about like his character, yeah. like who he is as a person. So I am just like so desperate to like find these like cinematic like elements that are just not there and like my brain just can't handle it like like it, every it was, time that waiter comes back it's almost just like my god a third face yeah exactly you're like what's gonna happen now it reminded me a little bit of of watching boyhood where it's it's like it's, it's like there's these moments where he's just being like an idiot kid and you're like oh he's gonna die and it's like no, he it's he's just like 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 that's the point of the movie. Like like Regina, hello, like like you know this. Like like it's just someone living his life. And but but it's because you're watching a movie and you're so used to like, oh, he took out his cell phone and he's driving, so he's gonna go over a cliff now. I know how movies work. And it's like, no, that doesn't happen. So so like like you know. It, it felt the same like like with this where it's like it's not about that it, it it is really just about like these two men you know who are are friends or maybe they're not friends anymore trying to find this connection in in a Wallace Shawn like not wanting to be there but just sort of being like okay well you know what I'm gonna make the best of this by like 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 his and and a kind of to go back into what I was just like criticizing myself for his like arc you know, if he's if he can be said to have an arc in this movie is going from like, I'm just going to make polite conversation and because because this is something that I totally do as a person when I'm like uncomfortable in a social situation where it's just like, I'm going to ask these questions that's going to get the other person to just keep talking until they run out of steam. And then it's like we had, you know, our um, required face to face time. And then I'm going to hopefully get to go home. <laughs> like, that's like the most relatable thing that's like ever happened in a movie I've seen, you know, that's sort of like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, I like, yeah, that, um, you know, you know, but then like, like he moves past that and he's like, no, actually I don't have any idea what the hell you're talking about. Like, 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 you know, you know, and, and then it gets like, it's real and then you hear like his perspective on things and but then like 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 even though there's that that conflict where he's like he's like that's not how i live where you know while sean's like that's not how i live my life at all like like you can see in the mirror behind him like andre gregory is like really listening to him and like and like he's really taking his friend's perspective into account and he's like he's not just the the pompous pretentious guy who wants to talk about how great and interesting right, his life is right. he's he, genuinely he's fascinated yeah yeah which which is so great that he just like like has that like empathy and respect for what that maybe Wallace Shawn wasn't giving to him you know cuz like cuz like Wallace Shawn like like I guess like he's listening but you can kind of see where he's not like 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 he's holding back his reactions where he wants to go like 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 you're you're crazy. You, That's you, not how roofs work, Andre. Yeah, yeah, you don't like, get magic rocks to keep a roof on a building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where, where it's just like, yeah. Where, where, but he's just like, oh, and then what happened? Yeah, yeah. You know, where he's just like, you know. So it's it's like maybe even though like at first Andre Gregory comes off as this complete like you know self absorbed kind of like faux bohemian guy it's like no he is actually really interested in people and like and like you can see that just in like how absorbed he becomes in like in like wallace sean's perspective and he gives that like full respect so uh, yeah i really like this movie it's um i hated this movie the first time i saw it and the reason was because i don't really have a spiritual life and i don't the, the kind of pursuits that andre gregory for like 
good 45 minutes almost of the, the beginning of the movie is well Andre into the Gregory entree going going on and on and on about these like crazy little artistic journeys he went on like they mean nothing to me at all I really don't find them interesting at all which is like fine the movie doesn't need you to find them interesting but the first time I saw it I was just like I surrender I don't care I'm emotionally disengaging right now so even when later Wallace Shawn came and expressed my very viewpoint like yeah. I couldn't appreciate it because I was just like, no, the movie lost me. I'm not, I don't love my dinner with Andre, but I, I do think it's, I do understand what it's doing now and knowing where it's going to go made me able to appreciate the, the more subtle things that are happening during that first stretch of the movie. And I do think um, that there's other interesting things going on where like there is the very stuffy waiter who just like looks at Wallace Shawn and it's just like, you fucking slob, what are you doing in <laughs> yeah. my amazing yeah. five-star French <laughs> restaurant? And, and there is this like, but he's a waiter and he's like, he, the reason he's so appalled by Wallace Shawn is because he takes his job very seriously and he takes this place very seriously. So whatever thoughts he has, he is not going to express them. And he is going to, you know, I'm going to be the waiter. I am going to play this role. And there's this like little, like looks that, because Wallace Shawn is sort of stranded with this guy that for a lot of the movie, he has no way of connecting to and was dreading even having to talk to. Like there's little, like he almost looks at the waiter like a life draft where he's just like, yeah. Oh, it's a, it's another person. So I can like I can I can. It, there's an opportunity to be a human being, and it and like that is the thing. Here that is a is fellow about. human being who has never gone to Long Island to experience a simulation of their own death on Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Here is someone I can relate to. Right. But like, but like the waiter will not bridge that gap because the waiter has their own ideas of how things are supposed to go, and and that's the very thing Andre Gregory is talking about. So like. The, there, there's some other like it's not just like you could read the script and get the same thing from it it despite the fact that it is a pretty visually austere movie mm-hmm. there is some stuff going on um in the sort of uh, margins and stuff that i find very interesting yeah uh, it has um I, I mean whether or not it succeeds at what it's trying to do i i think just how it like flies in the like basic advice of show don't tell it i mean it, it completely blows that up and i think it's just it's the chutzpah you know to, to do that well the thing about show don't tell is show don't tell is great advice if you want to make an exciting movie that whisks audiences away to another place mm-hmm. and it and they just get sucked into the world of your movie but like literally what my dinner with andre is about is like is that what art is supposed to do? Is that good if art does yeah. that? You know, you know, because because like because like when we were watching this movie, like a lot of like what they were talking about was like, um, you know, you know where they're talking to each other about how difficult it is to connect with their peers, and they're like, you know, oh, I go to a party and it's like everyone is just making these jokes, and I don't really understand what's going on. And I thought of the trip, um, the Michael Winterbottom movie, so I watched that immediately after. And a, mo- a, a movie and TV series that is very indebted to my dinner with Andre. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Where it's like Steve Coogan and and Rob Bright and and they're like you know going around to these gorgeous restaurants together and just like, um, but but you, you know a lot of that is them kind of talking in jokes and improvising and like talking over each other and it's like this constant competition. So that was like a very. Um, 
interesting um like like the relationship dynamic was just so different like it was it was very interesting to see to see the two like like one right after the other um but also with with the with the trip films like you get the breathing room that my dinner with andre gives you like maybe at the end for 30 seconds right. you know you, you you get the breathing room of you know them being in their hotel rooms and on the phone with the wife and going to these gorgeous locations and you get the establishing shots and you know you know you you get you you, you get the show it's not just tell right you know so, so I, I mean i mean i i i love the trip for very different reasons mm-hmm. but it's kind of interesting to see the two you know one right after the other the other the interesting yeah. thing about my dinner with andre that um, it's not really part of its reputation, is at the end when Andre Gregory is dipping into sort of, I guess, like, the the best way to describe it would be, like, conspiracy theory, where there are, yeah. like, world, new world order, he doesn't use that phrase, but there are, like, there is a systemic, um, concerted effort by the powers that be to numb people and turn their brains off and to make living a simulation and, like, like it's this 1982. So this is before social media. This is before 24-hour news. I mean, I don't know. This might be right around when 24-hour news was starting to be a thing. But like, th- there's like a lot of things about modern life that is now old hat to say like, oh yeah, you know, this is brainwashing, and this is you know, this is how Facebook manipulates reality, and mm-hmm. this and that. But like, this is there is this sort of very ominous, kind of scary undercurrent to where Andre Gregory takes his conclusions. Um, especially because he is, as as a Russian Jew, um, he a lot of, uh, you know, he, a, a very influential thing in just, I don't know him as a person, but just as a character in this film, something that clearly influences his thinking and something that is always in the back of his mind is the Holocaust and is Nazism and is like, you know, he, he he's reading The Little Prince and he can't read The Little Prince without thinking, would a Nazi like the little prince? Would this, yeah. would this, you know, like how would this fly if I was a fascist? You know, um, and that's 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 a very real, immediate um, thing. And there is this sort of like sense of dread almost to my dinner with Andre that again pierces through the stuffiness. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the arcade adaptation of, uh, <laughs> of my dinner with Andre to get another Simpsons reference in there. Um, so no, that is a movie I like much more now, even though I certainly don't like it as much as some other Louis Malle movies, such as Atlantic City with Burt Lancaster. Um, Atlantic City, so I think we actually haven't really talked much about the bulk of how Louis Malle's fictional films play. We've talked a lot about his documentary. We've talked about um, sort of his early, you know, super energetic film. We've talked about the way he... Um, is operating on kind of a lot of different metatextual levels in films like Vanya and My Dinner with Andre. But he is actually, in a majority of his filmography, a very classic filmmaker. He tells very classic stories, and he is not particularly interested in wild editing. Again, Zazie Don's La Metro is, the whole reason that movie exists is for kind of wild photography and editing and effects and stuff like that. But for the most part, when you watch movies like Murmur of the Heart and uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants and Le Combe Lucien and, and Atlantic City, you see someone who could have really operated in the 50s um, in, in Hollywood. You see someone who could have worked with in the old studio system. He just 
has a good inherent understanding. I mean, he obviously probably wouldn't have been happy because he has so many other things that he's interested in that in that world he would not have been able to pursue. But he has the talent to make that. And Atlantic City is great because it's a Burt Lancaster crime drama about this sort of aging gangster um, who he basically was like the production assistant <laughs> to, to move it to film terms. Like he got coffee for the gangsters. He didn't do shit. But he has class and he still has sort of, he carries the the sort of energy of that old world and he does still run numbers. That's sort of what he does in Atlantic City. He goes through the community and, you know, he, he runs the numbers racket. And um, he meets Susan Sarandon, who's absolutely amazing in the movie. And he, he, they are next door neighbors and the way the apartment is set up, their windows are facing each other. And she rubs herself down with lemon juice every night because she works at a oyster bar at a casino and she wants to get the fish smell off of her. And obviously it's Susan Sarandon and she's fucking gorgeous and she's like bathed in light and he's, you know, watching her as she's rubbing her body down. It's this like absolutely breathtakingly erotic, sensual sort of experience than, that he's having. Um, and when her ex-husband and her sister, who is now pregnant by her ex-husband, sort of run into her life with a uh, brick of stolen cocaine, um, her entire world goes into chaos, and Burt Lancaster's character discovers an opportunity to sort of be the tough-talking, um, knows-all-the-angles kind of gangster that he always thought he could be or wanted to be. And the whole movie, in fact, is about people who see opportunities for other lives that they could have lived and trying to become that um, in a way that's very moving and endearing, but it's also like super well-paced. It's very fast moving it's got a really good plot the it's all takes place during the sort of renewal of atlantic city if you've ever seen the movie uh king of marvin gardens that's almost like it almost places like a prequel to this where that is about the people who the, who are trying to get in on the ground floor of the real estate boom that would transform atlantic city into um sort of a tourist destination and this takes place in 1980 i want to say this movie was made mm-hmm. um and so this is sort of where they're destroying all the old buildings, and obviously Burt Lancaster is an aging film star, and you know you know him as this very in these very athletic roles that are all about you know his body, you know, and, and, and when you see brute, uh, brute force, like that is all about just like Burt Lancaster is like the sexiest, most masculine man you've ever seen, you know, he's Newt Rockney, the all-American football star, you know, like that is Burt Lancaster, and so like when you see him old, there is this sort of um, there is this sort of weight to it that matches the way Atlantic City is being destroyed around them, even though it was mostly shot in Canada. It was one of those, it's one of those things that you hear the story of how the movie got made, and you're like, what, really? Where um, basically <laughs> some Canadian company, because this is the early 80s, so if you're a fan of horror movies, you know that there were all kinds of crazy tax shelters happening in Canada to get movies made. Um, and basically he was approached and said, hey, if you can get a project together, uh, you know, we you, we have funding for you. And Louis Malle's like, hell yeah, uh, I'll figure something out. And he kind of rushed with a co-writer whose name I can't remember at the moment. And they sort of quickly put this project together. It was mostly shot in Toronto with certain exteriors shot in Atlantic City. But it is a very classic character-driven drama. And it is very, it's you know, it's very tight and fast-paced. And the dialogue is great. And every performance is amazing. And Susan Sarandon is just a total star. And it has that, sort of Louis Moore, uh, Louis Moore. Uh, it has that Louis Mall uh, interest in people. There's like all these interesting little stories happening in the background and stuff. And even characters, when they appear, they kind of seem like one note jokes. They are revealed to have a depth and a, a warmth and a humanity to them. And 
it's it's an absolutely beautiful movie, and I'm totally in love with it. And it's and the funny thing is, we've talked about all these like different challenging ideas that Louis Maul has, you know, like all that is based his career on, where he's, you know, he's he's taking all these wild leaps of faith on all these different kinds of project that couldn't be more different but like the reason Atlantic City is good is because he's just a fucking good storyteller and he's great with actors I think another thing we haven't really talked about because we haven't talked about some of the movies he's made with children is that and this is something cinephiles in general fail to talk about is directors working with actors because it's very easy for us to go oh Spielberg dollies in and they're looking off screen at something majestic and that's one of the things Spielberg does you're like oh yeah and the De Palma has the camera whip around and there's a big crane shot and like that's all very easy to notice but the thing that you don't see because you're not there behind the scenes during rehearsal process and everything is how do directors work with actors but there are a lot of directors they're great because they get great performances out of people and they're very good with actors and I think Louis Maul is one of those people who is very good at relating to people and even if he's doing films with non-professional actors like Lacombe Lucien or you know Au revoir Les Enfants it's basically a cast of children for the most part and they're all just incredible um he's very good at directing actors and Atlantic City is full of actors who are only that much better because of it because they're already great you know Susan Sarandon this, you know, I want to say Pretty Baby, the movie that he made with Susan Sarandon before that, was sort of her breakthrough. But Atlantic City was, even though it's not particularly well-remembered now, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars and stuff. And it's just an absolutely stunning movie. And again, it's stunning um, for reasons that are totally wildly different than so many other Louis Maul movies being stunning. And uh, I can't recommend, if you ever get a chance to see Atlantic City, just, you know, see if your library has the DVD, just just seek it out and find it because just because there's not like some nice version of it doesn't mean it's not you know one of the great films of the 80s uh you you really liked atlantic city right regina yeah it was a great movie yeah um but you haven't seen atlantic city since the 80s right robert yeah but i i remember uh parts of it which is a testament to it i, I especially remember uh, susan sarandon uh cleaning herself off uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i want i want to say like <laughs> the, the Louis Maul is someone who, you know, you never get the feeling that he's like, kind of like, ah, oh, getting his jollies or whatever. Like, like that move, that scene is sexy, and there's like some, you know, there's it's sexually charged, and there's brief nudity, <laughs> and it is this voyeuristic scene. But like, it is exactly as explicit as it needs to be. He, the way he frames it, the way what it means to the characters. Um, what how Susan Sarandon sort of when she allows herself to sort of fall under the um, sort of the energies of men around her and when she you know strikes out on her own stuff she is a fully thinking person she's not sort of just this object of beauty that represents what you know Burt Lancaster never had she is like totally a fully realized character and he is you know much more interested in her as that and than he is her as just like a beautiful woman with big eyes like yeah. rubbing herself yeah. down I, I love how how I mean I mean that's like like the first image that you see in the movie and it is so like I mean it's very sexy but it's also so striking because what she's doing you're like you're it's also intriguing it's like why is she yeah, doing yeah. that um it's and then almost, you, you almost, get like so deep into the movie before she explains why like, she does she's it just like oh yeah i smell like shit i get home from a fucking oyster bar i smell like shit like yeah. it's not a sexy it's not like it makes my skin luminous right or anything. right yeah no. yeah the, the way that you might expect it to be from like you know if she was like 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 a bond girl or something it's yeah. just like oh this is like the weird sexy yeah, thing yeah, that i, mean, I do. it's like it's 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 a detail that like if you told me that like uh the the, the women in caligula's harem rubbed the 
themselves down yeah. with lemon juice, you'd be like, okay, yeah, that sounds like some decadent Roman thing. Yeah, and I initially thought I was like, oh, that's probably some skincare thing. Like, like, like maybe she's like, like, um, like trying to like bleach her freckles or something. Like that's what I initially thought. And then it's like this kind of like, like really kind of heartbreaking thing where it's it's like she has these dreams of of going to Monaco and being like a dealer in a casino in Monaco, but she's getting her start in Atlantic city and she's not even a dealer yet. She's learning how to be a dealer from this absolute scumbag. And she's <laughs> so working good. a fucking oyster bar he, where she's like French? shucking an oyster and she cuts her hand up. It's so sad. Is she like, French? Is she French? No, no. Is the, oh, I he's French. Yeah. The, I, like, I, I like think he has the, like a French accent. The, yeah. The, 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 uh, the sleazy plot, guy trading all the cards is that he, they, Louis Maul makes him French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That might also just be a byproduct of a certain percentage of the actors having to be Canadian or whatever, because again, it is a Canadian yeah, production. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Um, and Wallace Shawn appears as a waiter. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I remember it being very grimy and gritty. Uh, yeah. And cold and learning how to cut cocaine is a skill I never had a use for, but it's in there. <laughs> It's, it's actually not like Baby especially <laughs> especially when you compare it to like the '70s crime films that came before it. Like it's it's actually not that gritty. Like it's it's very wistful. Um, it's very like it's 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 got a great sense of humor. Like um, <laughs> at one point, Burt Lancaster's like you know, he's talking about how great Atlantic City was in the past. He's telling all these bullshit stories about it. Like oh yeah, I met Bugsy, you know Bugsy Malone or whatever. Yeah. And he goes, and at one point he's like. Uh, you should have seen the Atlantic Ocean in those days. The yeah. Atlantic Ocean was really something back then. Yeah, that's a great line. So it's it's actually it's actually like it's not it's you know there's definitely like some seedy parts of it and you know when the sets are I yeah. felt like were, were well yeah the crumbling yeah. buildings and yeah. and stuff like that the but the apartments but they're yeah so seedy might be a better word than gritty <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it's a it's just a really beautiful movie and it remains to this day one of my favorite Louis Mall films. Um, speaking of which, I think uh, actually before we go into our top three, I have a little email from Jim that I got to pull up. Um, Jim wanted to be on this episode, and then circumstances prevented him from being so. So, but he did start preparing for this episode, and he uh, sent a little paragraph that he wanted me to read. Um, Though I didn't get to watch as much as I'd like, I will say that Maul is a fascinating director that can be engaging or alienating at times. His body of work defies easy categorization. My first experience was seeing a film called Damage, which I don't really recommend. It was such a bleak take on the affair storyline that is borderline trauma porn by the end. It's clear that this director has genuine fearlessness in tacking tackling controversial subject matter such as adultery, suicide, poverty, incest, and existential restlessness. There's no denying the power of something like Au Revoir, Les Enfants, but out of all the work I've seen, there's something truly humane and intimate about Vanya on 42nd Street. It made me appreciate the art of theater and acting in a whole new light at a time when I was getting into independent cinema and adoring all things Julianne Moore. He's made a lot of renowned work early in his career, but Vanya remains the one I go back to the most for its purity and it's the showcase for the artistic process as being organic and warm. Um, so thank you very much, Jim, for that. Uh, I think we should get on to our top three. Um, Robert, what are your top three Louis Mall movies? Uh, well, let's start with the easy one. Number one will be Vanya on 42nd Street. Um, number two, uh, boy. <sighs> I'll probably go with uh, my dinner with Andre, and uh, number three will be uh, God's Country. Uh, Regina, um, pretty much the same as Robert. My number one's absolutely, absolutely Vanya on Forty Second Street. Um, my number two is Dinner with Andre. My third is Atlantic City. 
My number one is Vanya on 42nd Street. My second is Atlantic City. And my third favorite is a film we didn't actually get to talk about, Lacombe Lucienne. So I just want to really quickly say, Lacombe Lucienne is a film about the French occupation, about this brutish bully of a boy who wants to be part of the French resistance, and they sort of recognize that he would not be an asset to them because he just has no discipline. So instead, he rats out the French resistance and becomes a fucking Nazi. And it is sort of this amazing portrait of fascism as like a failure of imagination, like all of the... All of the collaborators, the French collaborators with the Nazis are all like former bureaucrats and they're just failed. They have just failed lives and they're just people who are sort of like, well, they're in charge now. So I guess we should continue to do things as we were, but for Nazis instead. And he's too dumb to see the writing on the wall that like, oh, you know, the, the Americans have landed on Normandy. The, the time of the Germany and France is coming to an end, but he's just too pigheaded to see it. And he sort of holds hostage this... Uh, um, this uh, young woman that he's enraptured with and her um, father, who is a tailor. Um, And because they're Jewish and he knows it and he has that secret on them, they sort of have to tolerate all manner of intolerable um, sort of occupation of their apartment in a really interesting sort of flip on the Jean-Pierre Melville film, The Silence of the Sea. Um, It's a really fascinating, really cool movie. And again, the lead actor is, was a non-actor and he's, um, got this great face, and it's it's kind of challenging in a lot of ways. And I think uh, it is one of the more, as far as these straightforward sort of uh, historical films that uh, um, Louis Mal made, that I think is the most interesting of them. So Lacombe Lucienne is my third. And that does it uh, for Louis Mal. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, Robert, how where can people find you? Oh, uh, I host the Still Watching the Skies uh, podcast about, well, I, I would say under-talked about science fiction films uh, and the feed at wherethelongtailends.com. Uh, um, and what, just for the heck of it, I have, also have another uh, podcast called Swamp Things where we've been going issue by issue through the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run. Uh, we've recorded 45 out of... Uh, what will be 50 uh, episodes. Uh, so it's out there, and I, th- I think it's uh, been very fulfilling and interesting. So, uh, what, years were those, what years were those Alan Moore comics released? 1983 through 1987. So while he was doing that, he was also doing things like Watchmen and V mm, for Vendetta. Um, so, this so, is, so this is the creative peak of Alan Moore. Yeah. So, And I, I will say... The Swap Thing comics are, are both uh, right up there with that peak. Uh, it's not as contained, it's more sprawling. Uh, but uh, I think there's lots of interesting things right out and lots of one and two issue horror stories in that run and uh, some great art by the likes of uh, Stephen Bissett, John Tottlebin, and uh, Rick Veach. And uh, I, I think it's really, it's, it's one of the formative uh, books I read in my life because I read those as a teen. Uh, so it, that made me a fan of Alan Moore, and I am to this day. Cool. Awesome. Regina? Yes. Can people find you anywhere? Oh, Christ. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess if, if you want to um, read uh, the, the, the various um, essays I've wrote, written on uh, fat characters in cinema, you can do that at pandabearshape.com. Uh, it is on indefinite hiatus and has been so for several years now. Um, 
not really on social media anymore. Uh, Good for you. And, uh, and I mean, you know, um, and uh, I really hope that I will be doing some form of theater in the uh, Chicago area before too long because can't really do that right now. Um, but I'm going to put that energy out into the universe and, you know, hopefully soon that will be a thing again. So Awesome. You can find me at uh, the uh, Tracks of the Damn podcast where I do commentary tracks for horror films. Um, last year I uh, had an ongoing project where I went through all of the Friday the 13th movies. Um, I have more episodes coming out this year, though there's no definite schedule. Um, but upcoming, I'm going to be doing a... Uh, Podcast. I'm going to be doing commentary tracks for Hostel Part Two, Jurassic Park, the uh, an off a little scene uh, Boris Karloff sci-fi thriller uh, called The Devil Commands, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So at some point in 2021, those things will happen. And again, I'm putting that out into the universe because <laughs> I certainly have Gregory would approve. I certainly haven't been putting in the labor to make them happen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you some magic rocks we'll I, make it happen I instead have been uh, taking a different approach which is sitting on my couch and watching Masters of Horror <laughs> the uh, mostly terrible uh, Showtime uh, anthology horror series from the mid-aughts <laughs> um, but uh, until next time you can always send emails to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com you can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com next month I'm going to be talk, tackling Tony Scott, which is going to be fascinating because it's an excuse to watch Domino again. Uh, <laughs> everything else is secondary to watching Domino again uh, and seeing that shootout to Three Dog Night once more. Um, also, I think Tom Waits shows up as a desert prophet. It's a weird movie. Some say it's the most Tony Scott movie. We will discover that next month. But until then... Uh, I hope you have a wonderful time, and I didn't decide on a sign-off, so I'm just going to say, zip it up, and <laughs> zip it out. 